outside of India and welcome to Machan Visit the World podcast. I've been lucky enough to be studying at a university in Moscow with students from across the world. I want to use this opportunity to learn more about the different peoples through their stories. Join me on this journey across the world through stories told by the people that have lived them. With me, you're Machan. That means bro in South Indian languages. I hope you learned something new with me today. Hello everybody. Welcome back to Machanos of the World podcast. And this time we're making a jump over through the Pacific Ocean from Argentina and we are in another part of the world, Southeast Asia. We're in the Philippines with Gabriel. Gabriel? Yes. How are you? Well, doing great. I mean, taking it easy these days. Okay. So, Gabriel and I we just met, honestly, because we met through our friend Daniel from the Iran episode, and I know very little about Gabriel. What I do know is that he is a master student in international relations. We have a hat trick of international relations. Argentina was international relations, Uganda was international relations, and you international relations. <laughs> so, that's pretty good. And he has been in Russia for 2 years. And yeah, that's pretty much all I know about him. So tell us, Gabriel, how's Russia been for you? How's Russia been for me? Well, let's let me start with my uh, arrival in Russia. Okay. I had a rough landing. How do you a rough, mean? Rough landing. Um, there was nobody to assist me. Everything was by, by my own by myself. Okay. I had to figure out everything without knowing any Russian language. Ah. Uh, I had a lot of friends who studied abroad in Korea, Japan, mm-hmm. uh, Australia, United States, and. They were. They had this uh, guest treatment. Like mm. when, 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 they, when they arrived at the airport, there was a party saying, "Welcome to Korea. Welcome okay. to Japan. We are part of the student community, so and so, and we'll take you to your dormitory, get you acquainted, mm. and let's be friends." Here, when I came in Russia, there was nobody. <laughs> You're like I had to figure everything out by myself. And you know how difficult that has been. The, even the language is different. Yes, yes, read. but. Well, it took a lot of uh, willpower to even step out of the airport because <laughs> I don't know where to go, who to yeah. ask. Um, needless to say, Google Translate was my best friend. Of course. And that meant, and that meant uh, I had to manage everything by myself, find, uh, find my own way. And that's pretty much it. My, uh, it was not a collegial arrival, uh, definitely to not. say the least. Yeah, and I think that's been the... Sit- the experience for a lot of people who I talk to because you know it's like Russia likes to make sure you have like a baptism of fire when you walk out of the airport <laughs> well just to make you feel that oh shit it's going to get real very soon well uh, you have to consider their interests for example in South Korea mm-hmm. I had a couple of friends who studied in South Korea uh, South Korea's objective in making their life easy and easy right. and pretty is to promote their country. Right. They want to promote South Korean culture all over the place and make sure people who study there have good reviews right. of the place. Right. In Russia, the objective is different. They want migrants to stay. Mm. So they force you to integrate. We'll not treat you as a guest. Oh. We will not give you the guest treatment. It's you who are stepping here and you're the one who has to adapt. Right. That's, that's, that's the sort of difference I saw. Mm, that's interesting. And um, you studied international relations, but focused on Asia back in the Philippines. Yeah, UP University of the Philippines, uh, Asian Studies mm-hmm. in the UP Asian Center. So I finished all the coursework and I just need uh, this uh, state examinations. But okay. it's a long story. So uh, short. long story short, I didn't take the state examinations because mm-hmm. I... Got this opportunity in Russia. Oh, okay. And I told myself, 
Well, not everybody gets to study in Russia, especially in a country like the Philippines. Where uh-huh. mo- and how do the Filipinos consider Russia? What do you guys think of Russia? At least studying in Russia. Studying in Russia is... Uh, I'm a, How do I say this? I'm one of a handful of students who study in Russia. There are not mm. so many Filipinos who studied in Russia, primarily because of our uh, diplomatic relations. Between Russia and Philippines is not very warm. No, no not really. We don't have any fight with Russia, mm-hmm. but... Our leaders and our political elite are so into America, right? So and of course, it's uh, they have this uh, mindset that if ever we if we keep on bandwagoning with whatever America says, right. maybe America will treat us nicer. Maybe America will okay. give us more economic benefits, right. give us more perks in security, hmm. more more investment in our economy. So that's a, that's their mindset ever since and. Uh, because of that, we before before we've foregone relationships with countries that we don't have any issue with, but have an issue with the United States. For example, right. Iran and Russia. Iran, we don't Russia. have any beef with Russia. We don't have any beef with Iran. Yeah. But because of our shall I say appeasement mindset towards the United States, we've lost quite a lot of opportunities with these countries. That's that that that's quite a point. And we will get into the influence of the United States pretty soon. So yeah. let's continue on with you. So you all, you also told me right now that you served in the military. Yeah. Of the Philippines. Which part of the military? The Navy. The Navy. So how was that? Because I haven't talked to a lot of people who have served in the military. Well. Is it, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is it mandatory to serve in the Philippine Army? No, no. It's an all-volunteer service. Okay. Cool. So we're not like, we don't have mandatory conscription like mm. Israel or South or, Korea. Or Russia. Russia, Russia, they're trying, they're trying to change it. Yeah, they're like, it's like a 50-50, but... 50-50. Well, the military, first I worked as a civilian analyst for, let's say, let's see, for a year, yes, in the Office of Naval Strategic Studies of the mm-hmm. Philippine Navy. That's where the, uh, I would say, smart guys, okay. smart guys are. Um, what we did in that office was we, of course, we were in charge of making the country's naval strategy, so it's like predicting other countries. No, strategy? no, it's like making war plans ah, to to oversimplify it. Okay. You're making the country's naval war plan. Uh-huh. You provide uh, analysis for uh, the big wigs, the top brass on top. Right. Like the, the chief of navy, they call it chief of navy in the United States. In right. the Philippines, they call it flag officer in command. Okay. You provide this international analysis and trends. You also provide strategy workshops. Of mm. course, you, once you make a strategy, you make sure people read it. So you have to. Uh, conduct strategy seminars all over different naval bases across mm. the Philippines and uh, travel the country for free. Oh, that's good. Of this, uh, that's, that's interesting because South China Sea is going to come up in this conversation and you would have a like, really, how do you say, strategic perspective on it. Well, from I wouldn't say strategic, but informed. Because informed, yeah. That would, be, that would be interesting. Informed. And five years in the Navy is quite a lot of time. And you were working as an analyst yes, for all yes. five years. Yes, and also I got uh, enlisted in the Navy, got the uniform, got the rank, and mm-hmm. was uh, lucky enough to join join actual, not really combat operations, but exercises mm-hmm. in the Pacific Ocean, especially with the United States. Mm. Uh, RIMPAC, the, the, they bill it as the world's largest war games. Oh, yeah. And I, when I see... Who, who will participate in that? Well, U.S. and friends. Okay. U.S., Japan, Australia, who mm. was there France, because they have Pacific territories. Right. Australia, New Zealand, who else? Uh, Peru, South, South American countries. Chile. Peru. Chile, Chile. No, I, didn't re- I don't remember any Chilean ships there. Okay, but that's quite a, quite a number of ships, isn't it? Quite. I mean, 30 plus ships. Wow. So, um, 
And it happens every year? Every two years. Every two years. So it's... Uh, that exercise is practically a show of force. Yeah. So show but why show of force in the Pacific? To intimidate China? Yeah. And they would say, no, it's not aimed at anybody. We are practicing our <laughs> interoperability. But you know... The, it's, it's a nonsense cover story. You know, it's aimed at China. It is aimed at China, right? It's a nonsense cover story. Do they do it in the Pacific or do they <laughs> venture into the South, South China Sea too? In the Pacific, uh, offshore Hawaii. Offshore Hawaii, yeah. But that's Hawaii kind is, of middle of nowhere. but It's in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And three months at sea is no joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, <clears throat> what what do you do when you're at sea? You advise the... It's kind of like... Well, what's your role inside a ship? Well, my role inside the ship was to prepare reports, mm-hmm. uh, reports and documentation for the entire exercise. Wow. At least the Philippine part. So I was there at the uh, the bridge. The bridge is where the captain the captain is and where they control the ship. Actually. Okay. And there's an office next to that. So I was there. That's I was there uh, doing documentation, uh, wow. sifting through pictures, writing narrative reports, so on and so forth. Uh, your typical typical office job, but it's just aboard a ship. That may, does that make it more exciting? Well, it grates on your nerves. The first week at sea, first week at sea would be getting used to the seasickness. Oh, first week. Okay. After a week, well, even if, if the ship ship moves around twenty degrees, uh-huh. rocks around twenty degrees, doesn't matter. You're used to it. Okay. But after a week at sea, and you start seeing nothing. It starts to get on your nerves a bit. Okay. Every day I wake up, nothing but water, mm. same faces, mm-hmm. and well, food is one of the few things that are supposed to keep you happy. Right. But of course, it's military food. It's not delicious. Okay. But it'll keep you alive. <laughs> <laughs> so I always want to ask a question: At night, from a ship, when there's no light pollution, <laughs> does the sky look? How does the yeah, sky it's, look? I. Uh, I consider myself lucky to see the real night sky in all its glory. I mean, you know light pollution, right? Yeah. Moscow, you can't even see stars. Exactly. Big cities like Manila, Karachi, uh, Delhi. There's, there's just too much light on the ground. Exactly. <clears throat> but out at sea, you can see practically the Milky Way. It's like a galaxy up. For real. Yeah. You can, like how you see in like these Hubble telescope pictures. Yeah, that, that's how much stars there are in the middle of the sea when there's no light pollution. Wow. And also you can see maybe up to 50, 50 or so, not, not, not beyond the horizon, but within uh-huh. horizon view, maybe 25 kilometers, ballpark it 25 kilometers. If somebody lights a cigarette in the middle of the night aboard a ship 25 kilometers away, you can see it by eye. Wow. That's how dark it is in the middle Whoa, of this. Oh, that's insane. That's how dark it is. Well, that's 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 really that's one experience which I want to experience at one point in my life. Well, join the navy. <laughs> join the navy. I know that's too much. How do you say? Too much work to just experience that. Like the novelty of it. I don't think I'm gonna be like wow for after seeing it more than once. So, well, I do it again. Uh, you do it again. I do. I do it again, but. Yeah, I have different plans in life now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So tell us about where you're from in the Philippines. Well, I live in uh, Bacor, Cavite, but Cavite, that, that that province is just at the doorstep of Manila. So mm-hmm. Manila is uh, the capital. The capital. Mm-hmm. So I live in Cavite, work in Manila, and uh, how should I say? Cavite is more of... It's one of the more, I would say, developed places in the Philippines. Because mm-hmm. in Manila, Manila is so overcrowded these days. And imagine, Moscow has, Moscow has how many people? 15 million 15 people. 15 million people, yeah. 15 million people. And uh, 
It's a big city, the biggest city in Europe. It has a lot of area in it. Yeah, with 15 million people. Imagine cramming that same amount of people, 15 million people, into a city less the size of Moscow. That'd be nice. Less than half the size. I'm from India, so I can imagine. I don't need to imagine, but it's... I can imagine the overcrowdedness of Manila. So they're moving all the development and all the businesses to my hometown, Cavite. And luckily, my hometown itself, Bacoor, is just at the doorstep of Manila. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I'm fortunate to see all these developments happening in my hometown back in the day when I was a kid, 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. What the hell was this? It, it was a jungle. It's, it, it's mm. a slum. Okay. It's a slum. No businesses. It's, it's practically a, a, a backward district, so okay. to speak. But then uh, things changed in the 2010s, 2010s. So we started seeing businesses uh, invest in, mm. in my hometown. So there was an economic boom right yeah. after the economic crisis. Yeah, cars, car businesses first. Yeah. Uh, international car, car clubs, not car clubs, car manufacturers right. started investing. Toyota, Mitsubishi, Nissan, we started seeing this in our hometown. Mm. After the car manufacturers came in, we saw private businesses opening, specifically malls, retail. Dude, I read so much about malls. You guys have the three of the ten biggest malls in the world in Manila, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, first is... Uh, Some fashion... What is this? They're all SM, Shu Mart, uh, run by this family, uh, this Chinese family. This Chinese family, what's his name? C, S, Y, C. Okay. Henry's the C family, the olig- one of the oligarchs of the Philippines. Ah, and they're Chinese? Yeah, yeah. Of Chinese origin or...? Chinese origin, oh, okay, and, but they've settled so long in the Philippines. But okay. We know this, we know that they still remit money to China, and mm. they have still big family ties in China. Right. So, uh, that we have SM, Shumart Mega Mall, it's right. big, I've been there lots of times. SM, Mall of Asia, it's another big mall. Uh-huh. What else? Is there, I forgot, I know there are three big malls in the Philippines, but I know only two. But, S- I'm sorry, I read that your malls have, are like, how do you say, the center of social interaction yeah. for everybody. There are churches inside, Bars just like nice S- just like SMSS, we've got it all for you. That's their <laughs> that's their jingle in the yeah. uh, that's their jingle in the supermarket. We've yeah. got it all for you, and they're they're correct because uh, one thing I could say is that we don't have big parks here in Russia. Like they we have like even open open parks. areas, it's, right? It's, well, uh, we're an island country. Uh, it's small, right. overpopulated, mm-hmm. so and it's hot. It's tropical country. Yeah. Why would well in Russia you can enjoy your time in the park, walk walk around in the forest, uh, get relaxed. In the Philippines you'll be drenched in yeah, exactly. I did. I'm from tropical climate. I know. So you know. So you also know this. So malls have become the de facto replacement for parks in the mm. Philippines. That's interesting. And what all cool things are there? I can say practically everything. Yeah. Dude, the church really surprised me. Like, who put a church in a mall? Well, that. Well, practically all malls in the Philippines have some chapel service inside. Wow, that's, 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 the, that's something new for me. The bigger ones, maybe the bigger ones, but the community level malls, of course, you don't have that. Mm. The bigger ones, yeah, they do have some church services there. Mm-hmm. It's because, uh, yeah, as I told me, it's already the social center of the Philippines in lieu of parks, because mm. parks aren't going to mix well in the Philippine right. climate. We have malls. That's really interesting. So, could you, like, geographically explain to us where Philippines lies in Asia? Oh, Southeast Asia, in the middle of Southeast... We're in the middle of Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. uh, bordering the South China Sea, mm-hmm. Indonesia, 
Vietnam, Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the closest. To go to south. Yeah. Okay. And top of us is Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and because of our uh, location, of course, we were considered we are considered a prime piece of real estate, as Trump put it. <laughs> Philippines is a piece of re- a piece <laughs> of prime real estate. He told that. Yeah. In, in, in what context? So I'm trying to see dispute. Ah, okay. And because of our location, we have, we have always been colon, we've always been colonized for, as uh, part, uh, for most of our recorded history. Wow, it's a prime real. It's, as Trump said, it's a chunk of prime real estate <laughs> in the Pacific. Uh, Spain wanted to colonize us because, uh, first they were looking for spices, but then secondly. But, but they found out that the, uh, we had no spices. Okay. And they tried to grow spices in the Philippines, uh-huh. but we couldn't compete with Indonesia, ah. the Spice Islands. Or right. The, uh, old, one of the older names for Indonesia, Spice Islands. And oh. they're not called Spice Islands without a reason. Oh. So we, Spain colonized us to find spices, but then they didn't find any. So they tried to grow spices, okay. but they couldn't compete with Indonesia. And Indonesia was Dutch at that point of Yeah, time? Dutch. Okay. They couldn't compete in quality and quantity of spices. Right. But they had one card up the race. Uh, they got a forward operating base close to China, which was the uh, center of world trade back then. Mm-hmm. All the big shots of the day had outposts in so- Southeast Asia precisely for trade with China. Mm. So the Dutch had Indonesia, the British had Singapore and Hong Kong, the mm-hmm. French had Indochina, mm-hmm. which is Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam today. So all of those served to, as, yeah, as I would say, trading outposts. Trading Spain out. had the Philippines. Right. How did like, but the, the, tra- the Spain had to circumnavigate through America to find Philippines, yes. if I'm not mistaken. It's, they took the long way there. Yeah, it was, a, I, I should say, the Philippines was, a, it's harsh, but... My, uh, I know a lot of people would agree with me. The Philippines' creation as a country was completely by accident. As a country, you mean? Yes, completely by accident. And what about the natives there? What was the polit- was there kingdoms or well, chief, chief? Yeah, there were indigenous uh, peoples there, of course. Right. There were several tribes scattered across the islands. Mm-hmm. And in the south, in the areas uh, bordering Malaysia and Indonesia... You have Muslim communities there, mm. so because of the sultan, sultanate influence from the yeah, sultanate influence Indonesian from, sultanate. Yeah, Malaysia, Borneo, Borneo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, down south there were uh, Muslim communities, but up right. north uh, there were also Muslim communities, but not as strongly established as down south. Right. Uh, up north, uh, we mostly had these. Uh, what do you call this? Austronesian natives. Yeah, that's the ethnicity. Austronesian natives. Could you explain what what that means? Austronesian. Austronesian. It's like a sort of. Ra- I don't sound. I want to sound racist, but it's a sort of racial classification, like Mo- Mo- Mongoloid Chinese people. Right. Mongoloid. Uh, Chinese Korean Tibetan Japanese. Tibetan Mongoloids are like Chinese people, yeah. and Caucasians Dra- are like white, white people. people. Dravidians, Indians, Iranians. Yeah. No, Dravidians are like South Indians. Yeah. In specifically. Uh, of course. Uh, Coastwide so, Africans, right? Coast-wide. So, Austronesian people, uh, Austronesian people are this ethnicity starting from uh, from Madagascar, can, can, yeah, Madagascar, Seychelles Islands, right. Maldives, all the way to even some in, some parts of South India too. Have, yeah, South have tribes of Austronesians. 
South South Southeast Asia, mostly the maritime part, mm-hmm. uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, and all up to the Pacific Islands. Uh, like Australia includes in yeah, also Vanu- even as far the as the Aboriginal tribes of Australia. Yeah, Aboriginal. as far as like what Vanuatu, Kiribati, those Kiribati. Did, Islands in the middle of nowhere. So, if I may ask, what's the difference between a Polynesian and an Austronesian? A Polynesian and Austronesian? Well, uh, I've been reading about the Pacific cultures <laughs> recently. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure what's the difference between a Polynesian and Austronesian, but I do know Polynesian is a group, is a sort of uh, ethnic, ethnic group for the Pacific Island region. In mm-hmm. the Pacific Islands region, it's not only Polynesian. You have Melanesian. Mm. You have um, I forgot the others, but it's so. This is basically Hawaii, Midway, yeah. and all the islands in the Pacific, which yes. are not as of now not part of one big country as such. Well, more or less, they are part of the United States. United States, yeah. Like uh, how do you say it? Indian? No, Guam. Guam, yeah. I've been there in Guam. Oh, as part of the military? Yes. Ah, that makes sense. So, uh, let's get back to the history part. You were saying, like, the uh, Philippines was found by accident. Completely by, the... by accident. <laughs> so, wh- who the people who were living there in the Philippines before the Spanish found them, mm-hmm. who were they? What were they doing? Well, well, pre-colonial history. There's not much of a record of, about our pre-colonial history. Why is that? Because well, I believe the Spanish came around 16th century, uh, 15th century, 1521 to be right. exact. So, so uh, most of our memory of written uh, of pre-colonial times comes from Spanish records, mm. and archaeological findings. Okay. So, it's uh, how 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 do you call this? Most of the there were no cities in the Western sense, right. in the Western Roman sense, right. right there. So you 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 had to fight. There were these tiny little settlements we mm. uh, called Balangay from a ship, from a type of uh, seaborne inter-island ship. Right. But the Spanish uh, Hispanized it into Barangay because they cannot pronounce Balangay. Yeah, so uh, R- uh-huh. So uh, those natives lived in uh, tiny settlements, different right. towns, disparate towns. Okay. And uh, I would say... Uh, and those natives are Australasians? Yeah, okay. native Australasians. Okay. And I would say that it was the, a lot of people will like, disagree with me. It was the Spanish that practically civilized the Philippines in the Western sense of the word. Civilized in the Western sense of the word. Yeah. Which... Pe- people, would say, people would say that it's too imperialistic. But if, you're def- if your definition of civilization is you have to build a city, mm-hmm. uh, pre-colonial Philippines wouldn't pass for that. Right. It was Spain who brought that concept of civilization, which I generally agree to, uh, to the Philippines, and they were the first. They were the first country the, for the first factor who were able to unite this disparate uh, tribes, island per island, into a cohesive right. political unit, which became the Philippines. Right. And you have you have to thank the Catholic Church for that. Yeah, let's get into that. So. Um... The Spanish and the Portuguese were very keen on spreading religion to all their colonies. Mm-hmm. And there were like good things to it and bad things bad to things it. Like to we it. have to thank, at least from a South Indian perspective, like Catholicism brought education to a lot of people who yes. had been denied it uh-huh. for a long time. But there was also the, the Inquisition and the mm-hmm. oh yeah, all the mistreatment of people who were not Catholic in colonies well, of 
uh, these <laughs> Iberian countries too. How was your colonial experience? Well, colonial experience for the Philippines had its fair share of good things, fair share of bad things too. But I would think, and I think so differently. People say we overthrew the Spanish only to be invaded by the Americans. Okay. Well, as for me, no, it doesn't work that way. I think that the Philippines simply outgrew Spain. We didn't. We didn't. Uh, we didn't overthrow Spain per se. Of course, there was the Philippine Revolution of eighteen ninety eight, where mm-hmm. we practically, uh, I would say, toppled down the last remnants of colonial rule. But if you read read history, the development of the country, it, it was simply outgrowing the Fili- outgrowing Spain. Or we, Spain got weaker over time, and they couldn't afford to, to keep it. Overseas territory and they yes, to that that was up. one factor, but that was late late in their the his that was late in the history when they started losing against America. Right, but for the Philippines, we were a bit fortunate that we were simply too far to be governed effectively by true, Spain. True, and we didn't have any. I read you your center of Spanish rule was based out of Mexico. Yes, see, you can you can't even govern us directly. Right. Uh, from Spain, orders have to come from Spain, from Mexico, then to the Philippines. You can't even govern us directly. When Mexico became independent, there was no way Spain could exactly. effectively govern the Philippines for long. And the Philippine market at the time was more or less self-sufficient. We had mm. enough resources to function mm-hmm. on ourselves. Unlike African colonies, when they declared independence from France, they say, oh, Africa, right. Africa, we're independent. And, and you, lo- you just lost your only market. Right. <laughs> and... That's why your that's why your country collapsed almost immediately. Close Haiti, time. for example, Haiti. They were it was the also Spanish, if I'm French oh, colony. It was French. Okay. Uh, French colony, Haiti, in the Caribbean. Uh, not not really Caribbean, but in Central America, somewhere, uh, some other location. Right. They were the first black country to win their freedom against uh, win their freedom against uh, white colonial oppressor France. Which year was this? Around Haiti. which year? Eighteen hundred. Okay. 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 So they overthrew the French. Mm-hmm. But then, after overthrowing the French, they lost their only market. Mm. And of course, if you lose your only market, what happens? Poverty. Mm. State collapse. That didn't happen in the Philippines. We are, Our market was large enough to be self-sustaining. So there was no fear of economic collapse when, when the revolution happened. We simply overgrew Spanish rule. Overgrew in the sense, if I may ask, your population was also growing exponentially during the colonial period yes or yes was it after that uh, it was it, it grew exponentially during the colonial period because uh-huh. thank god for spain they brought medicine yeah. western medicine yeah to to the philippines public um, health systems right uh, none, none of these existed in pre-colonial times and uh, back in the pre-colonial times when i read philippine history people were dying of malaria cholera 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 was the number one killer. Mm. You, you have uh, bodies driven out of towns by a cartload. Mm. But when Spain introduced uh, public, public water, sanitation, sanitation uh, public uh, water purification services, right. and their pur- water purification service services, their you know this underground reservoir still exists today in Manila. Really, Spanish built underground reservoirs for clean drinking water. Then that was the start. Of population growth, development, etc., which would not have been possible without mm. their influence, without them them coming to the Philippines. So that's an interesting point. If I may contrast that with the Indonesian colonial experience, 
the Indonesia, the Dutch also invested in Jakarta, mm-hmm. but they it was very gentrified. It was yeah, divided. Colonialists get all the canals, the beautiful irrigate. I mean the sanit- sanitation system, but the natives were like live in a slum. They're mm-hmm. not going to change that. There was this clear distinction of where the investment and the mm-hmm. fruits of let's say colonial uh, the civilization goes to. How, was it the same case in Philippines, or was it more distributed? Well, in the Philippines, there it was also the same case. Uh, the center of Manila, the old Manila, Intramuros, so Spanish, mm-hmm. Intramuros, inside the wall. Mm. It's a fortress. With, For, okay. It was a fortress, the biggest Spanish fortress in the Philippines, Intramuros. Oh. It was a sort of gentrified town where uh, inside, inside, if you even go today in, in Intramuros, it's like a slice of Spain in the Philippines. Really? Yeah, old Spain. Uh, Colonial era Spain. Colonial Spain. It, it's uh, as if you're in how how should I say this? As as it as if you're in Havana, Cuba. Oh. Spanish influence is so still very strong in Intramuros. It was the center of old Manila, oh. seat of administration. Even the country's main cathedral is there, uh-huh. built by the Spanish. Okay. So. Intramuros was where all the, the elites of the time were, and they were people. People, they were Spanish people, basically. Or did the mixing between the natives and... Uh, yes, some intermarriage happened, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, although there was uh, racism, of course there was racism there, but some intermarriage occurred in the Philippines. So we didn't have this sort of racism like you see in the United States where mm-hmm. blacks are, are really oppressed. We didn't have that sort of thing. Was it more like Latin American? Latin America, yes. Uh, I think uh, because, uh, good you opened this, Philippine culture and political system is actually identical with Latin America. Why do you say that? Could you elaborate? (laughs) Identical to Latin America. I can pass for Latino if I spoke Spanish. Hmm. Really? Really? I don't know. (laughs) I can pass for Latino. But basically, we are mixed mixed people. We are Uh mixed race people. Okay. Like me, I my I, you can't you can I'm not white. I'm not black. I'm not Arab. I'm not Indian. Asian. You're not a. I, I Filipino people at, don't look Asian. Asian. Yes, we are mixed. Like let like uh, we're mixed people. Like in Latin like America. Latin America. Also, our political system, uh-huh. our political system to this day, was built on the same Spanish colonial system that you can also find in Latin America. Uh, which country would you say in that sense? Is Mexico. It's, it's the most similar to you? Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, all the Spanish colonies there, except, of course, Brazil. Mm-hmm. So uh, our, our presidential system our presidential system is still based on the Latin American model. Oh. So how do you guys self-identify yourself? Do you identify as Asian people or Polynesian Pacific Islanders or more Latin? Well... Uh, to put it to put it in a fun way, the Philippines is a Latin American country trapped in the Asia Pacific that speaks <laughs> English and likes to eat Chinese food. <laughs> that's how to, that's how to put it. Basically, we are the most Westernized uh, Southeast Asian. Asian country. Even Asian, I would say, without with the exception of Singapore. Some of South my, Korea. Nah, uh, but the me, English doesn't work there. Uh, let me put it this way: My friend who studied in Indonesia, she told me, you know. Philippines is like Indonesia minus the Asian culture. Mm. Indonesia, the culture is so strong. I have this Indonesian friend and I can see how strong the Indonesian culture is in him. Right. He, 
Yeah, he is a bit of he's a more of a conservative minded type of person. Yeah. Religion, his Muslim plays a big role in yeah. his life. Uh, he does Indonesian arts like uh, Indonesian martial arts like the pencak silat, silat. Uh-huh. all this cultural stuff. All this cultural important stuff are important to him. In the Philippines, the feel is the same, the vibe is the same, the climate is the same, but without these cultural stuff. Mm. <laughs> That is really interesting because I I only got to know very late that Philippines had been a Spanish colony. Three hundred thirty-three years. Three hundred thirty-three years. That's three centuries. That's three centuries. And fifty years under America. Yeah. So can I ask you a question? You've been Spanish for three centuries. Yes. You've been American for fifty. But Philippines is an English-speaking nation yeah. more than a Spanish-speaking nation. Yeah. Why? That's the that was the first case of I would say cultural genocide. First, By whom? America. Okay. Cultural genocide. So, of course, when... So, we're the only former Spanish colony that actually doesn't speak Spanish. Yeah. The only. How do you... Wait, doesn't speak Spanish, do you mean, for example, your grandfather's generation was able to speak, but then uh, it progressively it, reduced, or... It was, it's a mixture of factors. Number one, because um, back, in, back in colonial times, uh, Spanish was the language of government. Yes. As, however, there was no strong effort to the Hispanization efforts in the Philippines weren't as strong as what we what we've seen in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And to the extent we are somewhat like uh, Peru, Peru, th- this country where of course they were Hispanized, but, but they the, have Quechua. Yeah, they're indigenous other... languages. The same case with Peru, same case with the Philippines. Mm. Spanish was the language of government, education, and the elites, but the uh, uh, the general language there, the indigenous languages were preserved. However, those indigenous languages weren't, of course, safe from Spanish influences. Mm. Uh, for us, uh, Tagalog, uh, Tagalog, or Filipino, the, be- the better term, the Filipino language is like 20% Spanish, but it's mm. still largely largely indigenous. Right. Kikecha also, I'm, I don't know a word of Kikecha, but I'm sure Kikecha has been influenced by, by Spanish. Spanish yeah. Same case in Peru. The, the, the indigenous languages didn't die out it was the language of the normal people, of or everyday people, but the language of the elite and government was Spanish. Right. So going back to the to to the American period, so the American when the Americans came, of course, they invaded us in the same same time that they invaded Cuba, Puerto Rico. The 18... Eight, Spanish American War, War was yeah. happening. Yeah. I, I, that, where was the main theater of the Spanish American War? Cuba. Mexico. Cuba, mm-hmm. not Mexico. No, not Mexico. It was a different conflict, earlier conflict. Earlier conflict. Oh, okay. But it, but that Spanish-American war marked the arrival of the United States as a world power. Mm. So. But why were they interested in the Philippines? It was so they, far away from them. They weren't really interested. I told you it was an accident. But co- that was Spanish find, finding you. That yeah. was the accident. Yeah, but for the United States, I just recently read an article about this, and uh-huh. I was so surprised that even the American invasion of the Philippines was a complete accident. Why? So, so to begin with, Spanish-American War, uh, the USS Maine blows up in Havana Harbor. The United States finds an excuse to invade Cuba. Cuba. So they invaded. However, there was a problem. There was a problem. You see, the United States was, was already a two-ocean country at the time, Pacific and Atlantic. And of course, the Philippines was then was a, was a Spanish colony by then. And Hawaii wasn't really under U- U.S. Yeah, control like back a- then. 
own kingdom by itself. Yeah, it wasn't really. It was under U.S. influence, but it did not have. It was statehood. Yes, not not even a naval base. Right. Then, so the only place in the in the Pacific where the U.S. could re- could station their ships was at Hong Kong, a British colony, mm-hmm. and the Philippines was a Spanish colony. Mm-hmm. And as a Spanish colony, the Philippines had a, had a contingent of Spanish warships in there in Manila Bay. Okay. So, of course, uh, United States was already trading with China back then. So through uh, Hong Kong, yeah, through Hong Kong, okay. and uh, through Hong Kong, and the U.S. Pacific Fleet was based at Hong Kong by the time. Oh, really? By the time. So when the Spanish um, Spanish American War broke out, there was the danger that the Spanish warships in Manila could be used to attack American shipping crossing from oh, China yeah. to the United States. So okay. what do they do? They invade the invade the Philippines, of course. Problem solved. Problem solved. Blow up the Spanish fleet in Manila. And they did. And they did. Mm-hmm. That marked their arrival in the Philippines. Ah, okay. It, was, it wasn't It was really out of... Also, they were caught in their own rhetoric. Who was the president at that time? Uh, not, I forgot to... Definitely not Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, I think that... He was, he was a soldier in that war. Oh, really? Oh. He was, they were caught in that... The United States was caught in their own rhetoric. They were... They had this idea of manifest destiny. We have to spread the we have to spread the blessings of democracy all over the oh, place. That that should started then. It started then. We have to liberate the starving Cubans who oh, are suffering. I thought, I thought under... that was a Woodrow Wilson period, but I earlier, even earlier. earlier. Wow. We have to liberate the starving Cubans from Amer- from Spanish colonialism. Of course, they were trapped in their own rhetoric. If you do that for the Cubans, why can't you do that for the Philippines? Yeah. They were trapped between military necessity and getting trapped in their own moralistic rhetoric. Rhetoric. Interesting. That's why they had not not much of a choice but to uh, walk the talk. <laughs> yeah. That's super interesting. So we talked about the Spanish influence. We talked a little bit about the American influence. We'll get back to that. But the other thing which I found really interesting about Philippines is the influence from the other Asian cultures. Oh, yeah. Indonesia, even from India. Because mm-hmm. you guys yes. have, I, I, well, I was reading that in your main native language, which is Filipino, which is mm-hmm. called ta- Tagalog. Tagalog uh-huh. has like 20% Sanskrit words. Yes, a lot of words. Say, for example, our word for uh, love, mahal. Mahal? What, in, in India, what's what, what, mahal? Mahal actually means a palace. It's like mm-hmm. Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. It's like Taj means marble, Mahal is like a palace or a mausoleum or a mm-hmm. big structure, as far as I know. And I think Mahal is like a Persian word, if I'm not mistaken. Or even Maharlika. Maharlika, Maha means grand, big something. See, Maharlika is an old uh, Filipino word for a nobleman. Nobleman. Nobleman, somebody Ma- of high birth. May, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, I, I, I kind of found a few Sanskrit words. There's a lot. We can like see if you make sense so i'll say the sanskrit and you tell me if it anything similar to mm-hmm. tagalog uh oh, tagalog a, a filipino language yeah agam 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 it means thinking thinking yeah kind of it, it, it's real meaning is like uh, reservations ac- acquisition of knowledge oh when philippines when you say agam or agam agam you mm-hmm. usually double it you are ruminating deeply about Ooh. something wow yeah, it kind of the same in Sanskrit, but I don't use Sanskrit. It's but it does have a little bit of influence on my own language, yeah. so I can kind of feel it, uh-huh. even though I might not know what it means. <laughs> Let's try an, another one. Mm, varta. 
Farta? Yeah, in in Tagon it's like balita. 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 Balita, yes, balita news. Exactly. It means the same thing. Warta in even in my language it means news. News. Balita. It it's kind of derived from that as per this article. Wamsha. Wamsha. So all the verb becomes ber in your language. Then how would it be? Uh what can you say it again? So Wamsha. So in your language it become like Bansa. Bansa. Ah, country. Country or state. Or a dynasty or a, or yeah, a state. Yeah. In our at least in my language it means like your uh, familial lines. Mm-hmm. Bansa. Wamsha. Uh, in the northern Philippines in Manila it's Bansa. Bansa. Uh-huh. In southern Philippines where the Muslim pop- population is it's Bangsa. Uh-huh. Same as with Indonesia also. Bangsa, oh. Bangsa. Oh. Yeah, yeah, dude. That's the thing. I did the same exercise with my Indonesian podcast, mm-hmm. and there were so many words which are similar, and it's super interesting. Mm-hmm. What about body? Ah, uh, body. It's like budhi. In, yeah, it's like something an inner. It's not really soul. Inner will. Whoa, that's interesting because for us, when you say budhi, it means your intellect. Something inner, inner soul or something or. Or. Will something like really? that? Mm. It's kind of different the way how you guys use that yeah. word and how we use it. For in my language, it means uh, your it, intellect. You're Hindu. Uh, I was I was raised Hindu. Yes. Bodhi in India, Bodhi in Tagalog or Philippine language. It means uh, something like that. Just something. Uh, it's not not really soul, but your will or intellect to do things. Ah, that's that's in- and do you guys use these words often? Well. Oh, is it like these ancient, only poetic sort of no, terms? No, 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 not really. We have we use them in uh, quite colloquial situations. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> colloquial situations also. Let's try an another one. Devata. Diwata. What does it mean? Uh, some sort of these mythical beings. Pretty much, yeah. For us, it's like Devata. devas. It's like spiritual, mythical. Yeah, I think it's we are bang on about that. What about dosha? No, dosha, dosha, do, do in your language, dosa, do suffering, suffering, yeah. or also uh, illness. Uh, in in uh, uh, Sanskrit language, dukha, dukha, yeah, that means dukha sadness. In in, in 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 Philippine language, it's poverty. Oh. It's like a really deep word for poverty. Dukha. Uh, for example, in 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 Filipino language, when you say mahirap, hard, uh-huh. mahirap, you are poor. Uh, colloquial sense, okay. Okay. but when you say pobre in Spanish, uh-huh. that has an aggressive connotation, like oh. you, you lowly being, pobre. <laughs> okay. Dukha, it's a, it, it means a deep and profound level of suffering. Whoa. So <laughs> it's like you use Spanish to swear, you use your language for your normal conversation, and if you want to speak something spiritual, it's like you use Sanskrit from the context of the Sanskrit yeah, yeah, word. Also, our swear words are all Spanish. Really? Like, no, 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 not not here. But it's all Spanish. <laughs> Dude, that's and there's another Indian language called Tamil. Have you heard of Tamil? Yes, Tamil. Tamil. Tamil language also. So that's from the south side, and it's completely different from Sanskrit. And there are some loan words from it too. So let's try a few of that. Mm, something which I know. Kaval. Kava. Kaval. In, In your language, like Kaval. Kaval, K A W A L, Kaval, Kaval, K A W, a Kaval knight or a soldier, guard. We say Kaval for a person guarding something. Mm. Do you guys use that word? Kaval, yeah. 
Kawal, yeah, yeah, but in kawal, but yeah, but it's a bit of an old Filipino word. It's not so used these days. Uh-huh. Uh, commonly, kawal, guard, guard, or uh, kawal is soldier. Soldier. Soldado, Spanish. Uh, Soldado. Used in that term, uh-huh. sense. We use that word for like a guard specifically, uh-huh. a person who's guarding something or taking care of something. How about Mangay. Mangay. Manga. Manga? Mm-hmm. It's a plural for manga. Like, for example, uh, this uh, candies. Manga uh, mm. candy. No. How, how do you guys say mango? Mango. Manga. Manga. Uh-huh. Ah, for like, us, it's like manga. I can eat like baskets of this stuff. <laughs> I can eat like 10 of them in one go. Whoa, that, that's some serious manga part. <laughs> well,. Man, I'm so I'm so surprised how mangoes are damn expensive here. Dude, for, I haven't even seen a lot of mangoes since yeah, I've been here. Well, in the Philippines, we just pick it off the tree. It's free. Same, same. Here, 200 rubles for <laughs> what? Three mangoes. Even even less. That's crazy. And that's not even the sweet one. That's the hairy yeah, thigh mango. Yeah, not good. Oh, this is an interesting word. Misei. Misei. Uh, Misei. Misei. Uh, Maybe if you can pronounce it in Filipino, I can understand. Uh, Misay. Misay. M-I-S-A-Y. M-I-S-A. Misay. Misay. Nah. Misay. Mustache. Ah. Sorry. In Philippines, we, we, we use a more Spanish term for it. Maybe balbas. Barbas. Barbas. Barbas in Bar- Spanish. It's for beard. Uh-huh. So how do you say Misha? Like bigote, bigote. bigote. It's, oh. it, I think it's Spanish. Ah, so you guys use the Spanish term more than this mm-hmm. one. How about this one? Putte. And in put- puto. Puto. It's a cake. What? Dude, rice cake. Rice cake. Exactly. But I, I'm from Kerala, and I, and if you go anywhere outside Kerala, you wouldn't see put putte. Mm-hmm. But I seen that the same word is used in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. Indonesia, and now in Philippines. Philippines, which well, is super crazy because. Even uh, even in so- even in South India, people don't know what put, put is. Rice cake. Rice cake. Yeah. Well, uh, Made of the rice powder, and we put a little bit of coconut grind. The things. Mixed. So the same. We have this uh, variety. They also have this probably in Indonesia. In, they do. They do. Puto, puto bumbong in Indonesia. Puto bamboo. Bamboo. It's, it's a rice cake cooked in a bamboo. Exactly. Piece of bamboo. We have that ba- uh, bamboo put. We call Bum, it. Bumbong bamboo. Uh-huh. I get it's so the pronunciation is so similar. Puto bumbo, puto bambung. Yeah. And it's 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 super interesting that But I think the Philippine version is sweeter. Because there's more coconut grinded in it. Um, or do you guys put sugar per se? Sugar and uh, butter on mm. it. Sugar and butter. I don't think anyone of us tried putting butter in putte. But I'll I'll definitely try that. Dude, this is so cool because the Tamil influence is there and have you heard of this Rajanate of Sabu? Saba. Sabu. Saba. Saba. It's like it's a night in the right? south. Saba, yeah. And uh, uh, it's a sore issue between the Philippines and Malaysia. Really? It's a sore issue. It's, it's co- like a disputed territory. Yeah, but uh, not to be unpatriotic, but I think you just give it to Malaysia. It's just a headache for the Philippines. <laughs> really? Just yeah. give it to You guys them. already have 7,000 islands. <laughs> well, well, it's complicated history because... First, uh, Saba, Sultan, Sultanate of Saba, right? Mm-hmm. So, this uh, Sultanate of Saba, let, let me uh, revise my memory. Yeah, it's 
Back then, pre-colonial times, Sabah, Malaysia, was actually under the control of the Sultanate of Sulu, it's which is in... a Philippine island. Ah, okay. Yeah, so the Sultan had this territory in Malaysia, which is Sabah. Uh-huh. So, uh, after that, After that, uh, when the British came, when the British came, uh, they had this dubious agreement with the Sultan of Sulu, saying the key term here is lease, lease. The, Brit- the British understood their agreement that the British understood uh, the word lease. I lease. I don't know the legalities of it as seed, something like that. Mm. Uh, they, the British, would get Saba from the Sultan of Sulu and in turn pay him uh, allowance of sorts. Mm. While the Sultan thought of it as rent, it's still mine. You're just renting it. Okay. So, so when, so when uh, the Americans came to the Philippines, because so when the Americans came to the Philippines, the uh, it was consul, it was consolidated, uh, it was consolidated. The, the Sultan lost his authority, and it's a complicated legal story. It, it, there's an entire thick book written about that about this island. Yes, but uh, the point of the point, of, the whole point is the Sultan of Sulu gave his claim to Sabah to the Philippine government eventually. Eventually. Eventually, mm-hmm. and it's a sore point between Malaysia, Malaysia and the Philippines because our government still insistently claims Sabah, mm-hmm. Malaysia, as part of the Philippines. Right. And it it usually opens up when there are political crises in the Philippines. So, mm. for example, COVID nineteen, we we're botching up a response, and so when the government wants to rally up mass support and patriotism, you open up the dispute. That's, Sabah. That's your Kashmir in a way, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> you want a shot of patriotism in your arm, you bring yeah. this issue. Oh, Kashmir, it, it's uh, but for all intents and purposes, Sabah is. Firmly in Malaysia control, Malaysian oh, control cool. right now. Are the is it is it a habited island? Are, do people live there? Yes, uh, uh, of course. Uh, uh, there are many illegal Philippine migrants in Sabah because it's just two hours by boat from Philippines. Ah. and uh, yeah, so it's but, a it's a sore sticking point. But Sab- Sabah people per se, I think they're happy with being in Malaysia. Mm. And it's only the Philippine government who keeps on insisting on these claims, just to, as you said, give give the people a shot of patriotism okay, whenever there's required. a problem. True. I, I I brought this up because the, lad, the Ladinate of Sabah or Sabu was a prince from the Chola dynasty in the uh-huh. south side of India, and they had like really huge influence on the Mahajapid and the yes, Srivijaya Majapahit. Ma, Majapahit, I always yes, forget the name Indonesians. of Indonesian. And this guy actually set up his own Rajanate in mm-hmm. the Philippines, mm-hmm. which is absolutely crazy because this is like South India. The uh-huh. Philippines is so far away, but that influence was able to spread. And most Indians are not aware of that. Indians think that India's sphere of influence is... The South North, Asia. South Asia, the North Side, Pakistan, Bangladesh, little bit of Nepal, that's it. Uh, Sri Lanka. Sorry? Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, yeah. Sri Lanka too. Uh-huh. But the influence towards the East Side from Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand. It, actually, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's And a lot. In, when we study history, it's like, yeah, a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of them. Yeah, just went to the side, but forget that. Like, the action's happening in the North Pakistan South side. So, for me, it was really... I find it really interesting when I talk to people from South Asia, the Indonesia episode was like uh-huh. that, yours is like this, where I can see that the influence, both in the north side and the south, uh-huh. it, because it's two different cultures in a way, 
is prevalent in well, East Asia. Well, going back to my Asia study days, you have Indianized Southeast Asia and you have Sinicized Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Indianized Southeast Asia is like Thailand, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Sinicized. What about Cambodia? Cambodia. Uh, because the world's biggest Hindu temple is in Cambodia. C- Cambodia also. Phnom Penh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Phnom Penh. Mm-hmm. Cambodia. Phnom Thai- Th- Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia. The mm-hmm. Indianized part, right. the Sinicized part of, uh, of Southeast Asia is Chinese, Vietnam mm. and Laos, mm. uh, heavily Chinese influenced because they were former Chinese territories. Right. And because the actually the problem of the Philippines is its geography. We're, we're right in the middle of everything. Not in the middle, apart from everything. Oh, you mean in, from an Asia, Southeast Asia? Yes, but like you, you see, the mainland is easily accessible from Thailand downward to the arc yeah. of Indonesia, but yeah. the Philippines is out there. Mm, true. So that's the thing that that's that's also the thing why maybe we are not so Asianized because these great cultures, these cultural narratives mm. like China from the north and India from the south didn't really reach the Philippines because of the Philippines' distance. Right. It took Spain, <laughs> a third player. Galleons from Spain, from Mexico, to cross over the Pacific. I yes. find it. There so, were in the, there were Asian influences in the Philippines, of course. Which is the highest? Which Asian culture influenced you the highest? Asian culture, I think, it's Indian, Indian, uh, Indian culture, more yeah. than the Indonesian. One. But if, if, would you count? Indian culture through Indonesia. Yeah, Indian culture through Indonesia. Indonesia. Mm. The Chinese largely kept to themselves. Mm, they were traders, and they were not interested in settling in the Philippines. They were, right. They were traders. And how is how is this taught in school? The Indian influence is it given? <laughs> what do you learn in school about it? Well, like I told you, our our history starts in schools in fifteen twenty one when the Spanish came. Mm. There were there's too little. Uh, readings of pre-colonial history in the Philippines. Mm. So, pre-colonial Philippines is uh, like the reserve of nerdy academics. Oh, really? That's interesting. And uh, history for normal, non-academic people starts in 1521. Because for us, it's like we, especially now with uh, really nationalist right-wing government. Yes, under Modi. Under Modi, we try to push the pre-colonial history very, very strongly. Just to create that sense of, how do you say, independent nationalism from our own soil. Yes. There is that movement. Is there something of the same? Oh, Oh, yeah. The national narrative. The problem is our national narrative somewhat sucks. (laughs) Somewhat sucks. Uh, You mean uh, this uh, nativist uh, nativist ideology? Do do you guys have something like that? As far as I know, there is, but it's not significant. I mean, it's not really significant. It's not. It's trivial. Mm. It's trivial, but because our our identity, or say this, our ideology, is uh, practically that of a ca- ca- it's Spanish word caquismo. What is that? Caqui democracy. Caqui caquismo. Same in Latin America. Caquismo. Caqui- I don't know what that word means. Caquismo. Well, uh, it's best explained through a Latin American context and okay. transplanted to the Philippines. Well, when the Spanish came in Latin America, one of their uh, techniques of control was to co-opt native uh, chieftains. Mm. So these native chieftains, chieftains became uh, the government officers and elite of society. Mm-hmm. So caquismo, and uh, because of their uh, influence in the in the colonial government and society, 
uh, they were able to, shall we say, carve out little uh, little kingdoms for themselves. For themselves. Under yeah, the Spanish. Under the Spanish. Like divide and conquer. Yes, yeah. yes, divide and conquer. And when the Spanish and when the Spanish left, they won their independence. Of course, these elites were at the new were at the new top of society mm. at the time. These new caciques, caquismos. They were on top of society. Same thing applied with the Philippines. So uh, we operated. We operated under this Spanish Spanish framework, colo- right. Spanish colonial framework, right. and our elites uh, espoused Spanish values, Span- Spanish names. Yeah, Spanish names. And when we eventually, well, when well, after we won independence, when Spain finally let us go and sold us to America for <laughs> twenty million dollars. Oh, there was money involved. Yeah. So it's like Alaska. Yeah, they, they sold us to... It's a transaction, no way. They sold us to America for 20 million. These new caciques were, at the, were in the best position in society to make the most out of American colonial rule. Mm. And you can see uh, you can see our elites are so Western-influenced, uh, old elites, Spanish and American-influenced. And uh, I say that their values, or these nativist values, as you told me, for you, it's based on Hindu narratives, right? right? For us, it means just sticking to America, whatever happens. Right. That's interesting. Well, and it's also driven by their economic interests, because for one... Is that a specific Filipino characteristic of having that narrative of, let's say, nationalism or nativism, which is nativism. highly de- dependent on America? That's for our, that's for our elites, Mm. That's for our uh, elites. However, uh, if you go back to the writings of our resistance movement against the Spaniards, right. uh, the Katipunan or Katiponeros, mm-hmm. uh, that's Katipunan, it's like a brotherhood. Ponero, Nero, it's a Spa- Spanish suffix. Oh, okay. Katiponeros. Probably the value lies in that. The, their, their, uh, the writings of these nationalist leaders, Apolinario Mabini, Jose Rizal, all Spanish names, yes. But they were the nationalists. They were, think- they were the nationalists. They mm-hmm. were thinking of uh, this na- nationalist narrative to somehow uh, chart the Philippines on its own path. Right. However, as with all things... We have elite capture. Elite capture. What does that mean? I don't. Know, I don't know that term. Elite capture. It mean. It meant that. Uh, elite capture. It meant uh, the powerful people in society use certain people and institutions to serve their benefits. For example, uh, the Katipunan. Of course, they wrote. The, the, these nationalists wrote a lot of good things uh, about being independent, mm-hmm. uh, being a strong liberal democratic country, etc., etc. However, our elites co-opted that story mm-hmm. and said, oh, we are continuing the legacy of these nationalists. Mm. But in reality, you're not really nationalists. You just use their names for your own branding. Mm. It's like what? It's like the owner of KFC. Uh, Think of this this way. Think of it this way. Mm-hmm. What the hell would Colonel Sanders want to do with modern KFC these days? The Colonel, Colonel Sanders as the person. The guy with the beard. Yes, he he doesn't. He's just there for the branding. Right. But the entire operation of KFC is a massive multi-million profit, profit business. Right. And they just used Colonel Sanders, the founder of KFC, as a sort of nice branding fact. to their enterprise. The same thing with the Philippines. Our elites used these nationalists as a branding for their commercial interest and to legitimate their rule. Wow. 
So it's like, can I say, can I say the, use the term oligarchy? Yes, it's an, yes, it's uh, it's an oligarchy. Which is kind of a common feature for a lot of Spanish colonies, well, former Spanish colonies. Well, yes, uh, we'll, go, we'll go to that. Caquismo, it means it's an, it's an oligarchy of these old elites. Mm. And uh, it's also driven by their commercial interests. Of course, when, the, when, when, when America invaded the Philippines... These, Why do you use the term invade? You, they were it, sold. It was, it was sold, yeah. Invasion is when there's resistance. There was resistance. There was resistance to me. Okay. Yes. So you're saying there was a nationalist movement that wanted independence. Yes. But the Spanish kind of just handed, this is your problem now. Give me yes. 20 million. Give me 20 million. Dollars or pesos? Whatever. Dollars. Dollars. Okay. So it was an invasion because uh, at the eve of the, at the time, we, we had a lot of parallelisms with the Cuban revolution. Actually, had the Americans didn't, had the Ameri- even if the Americans didn't arrive, didn't come, we were already on the verge of like booting out Spain. Mm. They were outnumbered, outgunned by their by, by their former colonial subjects, and no hope of reinforcement from Spain. All right. So it was just a matter of time before they lost. However, they just sold us off to the Americans, and they said, "Okay, your problem now." So when the Americans came, when the Americans came, of uh, uh, the we call them the Revolutionary Army resisted them for mm-hmm. some. For a uh, set amount of time, but of course, I mean, you're a ragtag colonial army versus the rising military superpower. What can you do? Right. So, uh, so there was a period of resistance from some time, but throughout the period of resistance, America had already co-opted our elites. Ah, they, again, the elites became, came to play the key role. Yeah, I mean, okay, we don't really care about independence. We care about our business. Right, and their businesses in the Philippines were cash crops, tobacco and uh, tobacco and uh, what is this? Tobacco mainly and sugar. That's tobacco. That's Cuba in a way, isn't it? Cuba is also a sugar-based economy. Tobacco, sugar, and uh, abaca. This uh, abaca, it's a fiber Mm -hmm. that in the day was so important for sailing ships. It was the only fiber that didn't rot in seawater. Oh, and it was. In demand by virtually every, everyone. Everyone. So, by saving ships, you need that. So uh, three products. Uh, those are the main products of the elite who had massive plantations, like mm. in the American South. Mm. So they said, okay, what about our businesses? Okay, okay, you can sell your products in America. Mm. Good deal. Just follow us. And of course, our elites back then were already co-opted because of their business interests. And... They had access to the American market at the time. They were able to sell their products, and it was a it was a good side of American colonialism. One of the few good sides of American colonialism, because if not for our elites accessing the American market, no that, money would come back to the Philippines to develop the country. Like you gave the example for Haiti, exactly. Haiti, of course. If you have no market, you, you get to sell. Then your market collapses. Collapses on itself. On itself. But our elites uh, secured access to the American market, mm. and uh, with that, after securing access to American markets, they built their, they deposited their money in America. They bought properties in America. They uh-huh. sent their kids to study in America, and those ties grew over time, starting from simple selling of cash crops to. Right to now that the United States is practically the life support system of the Philippines. Ah. <laughs> Interesting. So can I ask a question about the elites? Mm-hmm. I always wonder, because they are, 
there comes a stage when the settlers from Spain uh-huh. or any colonial nation comes into the population and they identify as a person of that particular colony and uh-huh. not as a Spaniard. Uh-huh. That's how all these in the American War for Independence. Mm-hmm. That's how kind of how their sense of nationalism came to be. Mm-hmm. But in an, from an Indian context, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. So I find it very difficult to understand how that sense of self identity for the colonialists was able to be developed in Latin America and in your case uh-huh. too, but it wasn't in India. What mm-hmm. do you think of that? Oh, actually, actually our, our old elites, there was this Philippine society, even today, is highly stratified, a caste system, if you call it. Uh, on what basis is your caste system? Caste system. It's not a rigid caste system like in India. It's mm-hmm. more of uh, your descent. For example, our old elites, we would... Well, the old term for the old elites were the principales, principles, principles mm. or oligarchs. Mm-hmm. These people were of uh, Spanish descent. I mean, look at them. They look so European. From both sides, you mean? Oh, like by Spanish descent, you mean they they're, they're Spanish descent. Like they never had mixed with the native population. Pro- probably, because if you look at their faces, they're so European. Ah, okay. And there's names like Ayala, Zobel, Lopez. Mm-hmm. So Spanish, right? So these are the people. They, they, these are the old elites. They are the they are the ones who don't need to run the country. I mean, they're already rich with their ties in Europe and America. Mm. They don't need to mess their hands in Philippine politics to be right. at the top of society. The second tier elites would be our government officials. Are you talking present? Yes. Okay, fine. First tier of elites are these principals or the oligarchs. Okay. Old elites. They don't. We're so rich. We don't need to dirty our hands in Philippine politics anymore. Right. Second generation would be our current politicians, mm-hmm. because the interesting is thing is when the Americans came in the Philippines, they were so frustrated with the old elites because these these people don't want. It, it, it's recorded in their writings. In, mm-hmm. in the they don't want records. More. They don't want to govern their country. They just want money. They just want to make money from the resources and yeah. export it to whoever wants to buy. Again, get rich. Right. So the Americans said, okay, we since these old elites are simply too stubborn and hard-headed and simply want money, we will create our new generation of elites. That's why the United States opened up the first public schooling system in the Philippines. Spanish didn't? They didn't. Ah, okay. Spanish schooling system. Public, was... uh, public. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Public, public. You mean universal basic education yeah. to the entire population? Yeah. In Spanish, okay. Spanish period, uh, it was church school. Ah, okay. Uh, run by the Catholic Church. Sorry. And uh, run by the Catholic Church. So, but by that, you meant to say literacy started to come up only after the United States came in 1898. Well. Literacy on a mass scale yeah. only came up to eight, until when 1898. But the problem was, even if it was open to the public, children didn't have the luxury of time to go to school. What? what? Pe- children had to work in the farms. Ah, okay. Do manual hard labor. And that would be the third level of cost. No. The yes, Filipino yes. caste system you're talking so, about. And since all other children could not uh, attend school, who were the ones free to attend school? The kids of the elite. Exactly. And so they went to the U.S. system. They, they were the, they went through the uh, 
US, uh, US-based public schooling system, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. They graduated until you have a new generation of American-minded elites who, who are willing... English. Yes. Who, who have are, American values. Yes, and who are... And, and who are highly trained to monkey American democracy right. in the Philippines. The old elite, they don't care. They're too rich enough. Their kids do care, but their kids do care. Uh-huh. So, uh, until now, our current crop of politicians are descended from the second generation of American elites. The first generation of elites are the business oligarchs of the Philippines. They don't dirty themselves in politics. What? They don't, Even now you're talking? Yes. Okay. They don't, the present day, they don't dirty themselves in politics. Second generation are politicians. Okay. It's American trained people. Right. And what happened to the kids who were working in the fields back then? Well, they stay poor. Mm-hmm. They stay poor. They, but they get education at one point. Well... Well, the sad thing of educa- the sad thing about education in the Philippines is that it's just an, this is an old statistic, but I think it's pretty much the same. Out of every one hundred kids who enter school, only four finish until finish college. You mean the dropout rate yeah. is high? Yeah, out of one hundred kids who start like first grade, uh-huh. only four will finish. It's college. a bachelor's degree, you mean? Yes. Ah, I don't know what that statistics is for India. Possibly could be worse, but I need to check that. Well, so you see, it's it's his uh, sort of poverty. I mean, it's difficult for me because I'm I work as a political analyst, defense analyst, and for one, you have to balance between promoting your own country but not being blind to its failures. Exactly. And at the other hand, you have to be critical of the country, but you can't just throw it into the trash bin. Right. There's a balance between things. Right. So. That said, so for the for the rest of the people in the Philippines who were not uh, were not uh, members of the elite, uh, the country stayed largely poor, large mm-hmm. low income middle, lo, largely a lower middle income country. However, the jump uh, the way out of that is the, is that the Philippines has a strong history of migration. Mm. People leave the Philippines in droves, <laughs> even back then. Yeah, even back then. But it kick-started during the uh, Marcos era, 1970s, mm. President Marcos era, because uh, typical Latin American uh, despotism, dictator ruins the economy, mm. there's no jobs, and of course people try to find jobs elsewhere. Well, I must... uh, Were you guys looking towards the West or towards the East at that point? Middle East. It was 1970s. The Middle Mid- East had an oil, oil boom, boom yeah. and they needed a lot of Like, workers. economy of my state also depends on that, so I know that feeling. Also, my family, my personal family has a history of migration. Towards the Middle East? No, no, towards America and Australia. Ah. Uh, and it, it's a long story. It, it starts even up to the 1920s. I know my family history. Hmm. Because one of the, the upsides of uh, being under American colonial rule is that back in the day, we were entitled to U.S. passports. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You mean that period when you were technically a colony? That means yeah. you were technically a citizen of the United States? Not really. There's a difference between citizenship and na- 
uh, be, being a U.S. citizen and being a U.S. national. It's like Puerto Rico. Yes, uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. We had Guam. the same status. So we, even now, Puerto Rico and Guam are U.S. nationals. National national, but not U.S. citizens. Yes. They cannot vote. Mm-hmm. What what are, what are the rights? They have limit. Can't run for public office. Exactly. But yeah. free travel to free travel to, to United, United States, States. visa free is possible. Yeah. Okay. So okay. we had that status back then, from 1898 to 1946, mm-hmm. my grandparents' time. Ah, okay. So they had U.S. passports back then, and a lot of Filipinos, especially my grandparents, uh-huh. went to Hawaii. Oh. Hawaii, Hawaii, as sugarcane farmers. Right. So that was in the 1920s. And it's the closest point from the Philippines to United, United States. States. Yeah. Right. And uh, I was there in Hawaii too, and I saw the sugarcane plantations. They preserved it as a sort of museum, ah. museum to the migrant workers of, of Philippines. Philippines, and not ju- not just Philippines, mind you, but Korea, Japan, and China. Interesting. But the but the largest chunk of migrants came from the Philippines. So I saw the sugarcane plantations. I saw the my God, this old huts there where the farmers rested their tools. Life must be really tough for these first-generation migrants. Can, can I draw a parallel mm-hmm. between the sugar canes of Cuba and sugar canes of Hawaii as bringing in cheap labor from elsewhere for the oligarchs to exploit? In Cuba, it was the slaves from Africa. Mm-hmm. In this side of the world, it was... Philippines. Would you consider that to be a form of slavery? Slavery has racist connotations. Right. But in the Philippines, we never had slavery. Even the Spanish didn't bring slaves away either. Never, never. They didn't... Uh, I, I, I forgot the reason why, but Spanish never implemented slavery in the Philippines as they did implement slavery back in the Americas. Mm. It was never implemented in the Philippines. It was their particular reason why? Uh-huh. Well, number one, we weren't profitable really? as a colony. Oh, okay. We weren't profitable. But, uh, you told... Sugarcane and well, the... It, it's, it's nothing compared to what they got from Latin America. Mm. The silver, the gold, the resources. We were just there for, the, for, for our position. Right. As a gateway to China. But right. for exploiting resources on a massive scale, no. Right. <laughs> That's a job of Latin America. That makes sense. It was, it was never implemented for that reason. We were, nev- we were simply not a profitable colony. Mm. Or we were just there for the position. That makes so much sense. And they back. tried to bring. They tried to bring uh, black blacks mm-hmm. blacks from Africa to the Philippines. Which way? First to Latin America and then from Latin America okay. to the Philippines. But they it never. They never really took hold in the Philippines. Uh-huh. I mean, why would you have slaves if you have lots of cheap laborers exactly. in the Philippines? Okay, kind of the same for India too. And also, and also because Spain was simply too far to govern the Philippines. Exactly. Uh, people there, even the old, even the Spanish colonial authorities, were a bit more independent-minded. Of mm. course, why would if I am, if I am, say the governor general of the Philippines, and I barely have any orders from the king. Yeah. I have my own kingdom practically. Practically. Why would I not enslave my own people? True. So that's <laughs> the thing I was asking in my question. Like, when did the na- the Spanish people there started feeling? Filipino started feeling Filipino. What, what was that point when uh-huh. the colonialists started feeling okay? I'm not a representative of Spain anymore. Mm-hmm. I am a person of this particular. Well, it was uh, what is this? We have insulares, peninsulares, and indios. The racial classification. Oh. Peninsulares, Spanish for peninsular-born Spaniards, okay. born in Spain, settled in the Philippines. That's it. 
Okay. Uh, Insulares, Spanish people of descent. I have Spanish parents, but I was born in the Philippines. Okay. Uh, mestizos, mixed blood, Spanish and native mestizos. people. That's same as in Latin America. Yes. Mestizos. And Indios, it, it's a really bad term. Indios, uh-huh. the common folk. Oh, the natives. Yeah, common folk. What's this term used in Latin America as well? Indios, Indios. also. Uh-huh. When I told my friend, when they call you Indio in Latin America, what does that mean? Oh man, you are in for trouble. Really? It's... You are calling a. It's like calling a black person nigger. Oh, is it? It's you want... has a racial it's hateful a... connotation it's a... behind it. It's a racial slur. Really? Yo, I'm Indian, bro. (laughs) It's a racial slur. And even if you say, for example, in the Philippines, it's like a joke. For example, if you see poor people doing stupid things, Uh you can say it's it's a sort of joke when you say indios tontos. It's like kind of like this classist way, (laughs) classist joke of integrating people. Yeah, stupid indios. Mm. It's a joke, but but if I replace the indios with the n word, then it becomes such a hateful thing to say. It is a hateful thing to say. Yeah, it's from a colonial it's, context. It's, it's offensive. It's, it it's a sort of offensive joke in the Philippines. So that's that's the racial classification. So when did these colonials started to feel a sense for Philippine identity? Yes. So it it started with our elites. It with the Usually, revolutions are started by uh, educated elites. Educated elites. Mm. We had this class of people called ilustrados. Mm-hmm. Ilustrados, or the illuminated ones, oh. <laughs> the people rich enough to study in Spain, mm. study in Spain, uh, and get enlightened by democ- democratic ideals, which were uh, which were emerging in Europe by the time, especially in France. Right. They came back in the Philippines. Came back to the Philippines. They saw everything was backward. They wanted to change things. So that is perhaps where the elite mindset changed through this class of people called ilustrados, mm. the, the illuminated ones who were rich enough to study in Europe, absorb democratic ideals, go back to the Philippines and see what was wrong with the country. All right. Uh, but these people, these ilustrados, of course, still come from the elite. And of course, as you can see, the peninsulares, the uh, people born, born in Spain, born in... Philippines, had the largest chunk of the pie, of pie, so to speak. They had the most influential positions in the Philippines. And of course, you have these dissatisfied elites, the ilustrados, who wanted something more for themselves. Right. They wanted to climb up, up society. Uh-huh. So Philippine nationalism started with these ilustrado people. Uh-huh. That's really interesting for me. So can I, I can stick with nationalism. Mm-hmm. From the Indonesia episode that I did, I learned that their Bahasa, Indonesia, Indonesian language, Bahasa. Was, Bahasa, was kind of a construct which yeah. was used to unite all the different islands with all the different languages together. It was like an invented language by linguists. Uh-huh. Is it kind of the same for your language, Filipino, which is, I'm sorry, could you repeat the name in Filipino? Phil- well, the language? Tada. Tagalog, yeah. Tagalog, Tagalog. Was that also a constructed language yeah. which was used yeah. to unite all the different islands and all the different people it's together? Tr- strange thing. Uh, one of our early, earlier presidents, Manuel El Quezon, in the 1920s, mm-hmm. he found out that uh, it's anecdotal, but it's something taught in school. But uh, let me just tell it. Mm-hmm. He is a Manila-born person. He speaks Tagalog, mm-hmm. Spanish also. But the problem was he found that he cannot talk to someone from a different island, say Cebu or Mindanao, 
Oh my God! And that ingrained him with the idea to create a national language, which is which uh, eventually became Filipino. Mm-hmm. It was dominantly Tagalog based. Tagalog was the uh, language spoken in Manila. And yes. Where about? Yeah, southern Lu- Southern Luzon. Okay. The, uh, the Philippines has three main island groups: Luzon, Visayas, Mindanao. Uh-huh. Southern Luzon is uh, Tagalog language dominates there. Okay. So uh, Filipino language is largely based on Tagalog with. Uh, loan words from different uh, different uh, indigenous languages however as for me personally i think i think it doesn't work english is still <laughs> it's so you guys prefer to speak more in english with each other than yeah, tagalog yeah. yeah because tagalog or tagalog or filipino as they would want to elevate it has a sort of uh, regional supremacy i feel so Regional supreme. For example, I'm I'm pretty sure Sanskrit is not the whole language of India. No. The national language. I mean, I mean, it's it's somehow elevated to a sort of national language. No, no, it's Hindi, not Sanskrit. Oh, oh, oh sorry, Hindi, but Hindi is based on one national language with a lot of loanwords from other languages. True. Same is same same thing with Tagalog. But the thing same with Hindi is that, the, the, at least in the northern part of India. Mm-hmm. A lot of the majority of the people speak Hindi. Uh-huh. Point A, point B, a lot of the different languages in North India are so similar to each other mm-hmm. that speaking in Hindi actually is kind of very easy for them. Uh-huh. But if you come down south, it's as different as Russian and Turkish. The way we write, the way we speak, the long words. A long words, there are a bit words mixing of two yeah, from yeah. both sides. So that is why India cannot have one particular language, language. which can be. Adopted by all the people because the people in the north would have an advantage, inherent yes. advantage of that. And same thing in the Philippines, of course. The Tagalog region isn't the richest region in the Philippines for no reason. Uh, <laughs> so that was like it's where, like a cultural dominance thing. Exactly. So and and how did the people accept a particular language? Because in I, it is a really politically charged thing. Yeah, it's a politically charged. In India, having Hindi as a national, that's why we have two official languages, Hindi and English. When I went uh, into Cebu Island, Cebu, from Mm -hmm. Manila to Cebu, I was like in a different country, like, shit, people don't understand me. Even in English? I tried to speak in Filipino with them, but they would say they don't understand and speak English, please. Ah, okay. So I said, man. That's not Indians when they come down south. Man. It, so it is real. The language barrier is real. It is real. So, so for me, I think English still trumps Filipino as the national language. It's like in Singapore. Singapore has what? Chinese, Chinese. Indian, and Malay. Malays. Chinese, Tamil. Which yeah. is more, they're more Tamil people. Mm-hmm. I believe, yeah, really. three big ethnicities. Right. And for them, the policy is speak your language at home, but when you go in public, speak English. Right. It's the same mechanism, I think, with the Philippines. Mm. I mean, Filipino is... Still, there's still the Tagalog language imperialism over Filipino language, and English is a sort of neutral player exactly. that equalizes all sides. Same for India. We consider it to be a neutral player because no one has inherent advantage in that particular yeah. language. Even in our, in, in, it's strange also in our constitution. Our constitution says uh, it is to be written in two versions, Filipino and English. And if there is some problem with verbal interpretation, the English version version prevails. Oh. Okay. Strange, right? That is kind of strange. In Russian, in Russian constitution, they say the Russian translation is the authoritative one. Yeah. Philippines is the English translation That's is the authoritative one. So, how was Tagalog kind of spread? Was it made 
compulsory in education for all of Philippines. Yes, yes. Uh, we have yes, yes. It was made uh, compulsory. Compulsory. My grandparents only studied Tagalog. They were from Northern Luzon, mm-hmm. spoke a different language, and they only studied Filipino Filipino language back then when they were quite late in life, like high school. Mm. They spoke. They only the, started studying in yes. high school. Started studying Filipino language in high school, wow. but for most of their life, uh, early schooling, growing up, they used their own regional language. Ah, that's interesting. And they only studied Filipino in high school. and <laughs> That's really interesting. But take note, this was in the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, but why... Why was the United States, the, this was under United, mm, United yeah. States occupancy, o- occupation, why were they keen on letting natives learn their own language when they can impose their hegemony through English? Why, was they, why were they allowing the education system to do that? Well, well one thing it was uh, for control, for, for control, to get control of the masses. I mean, the Philippines' chief resource isn't gold, isn't spices, it's people. Right. people so if you want to capture the capture the people the hearts and minds of the people give them what Spain did not public education mm. in English mm. you know, I'm talking about Tagalog why was Tagalog being uh, encouraged in encouraged. public education during the United States occupation yeah. wouldn't they prioritize English English well it it somehow it always played second fiddle to English at all that all the time. It it played second fiddle even in even in our education system today. Filipino language is yeah second fiddle to English. Mm, it's like second class language, right? To English, so so that's the thing. Even and it was, and even then, uh, it was never the language of our elites because. Uh, then when the Americans came, they replaced the language of government with English. Right. And one of the sad things about this is that uh, sad things about it is that a lot of our, uh, shall we say, good works of literature are maybe forever lost or never to be understood again. Good works of literature in which language? Spanish and Filipino, Spanish and in, in indigenous languages. Why is it lost? Lost because, for example, our lost it's because nobody can understand them anymore. I mean, mm. in the Philippines, only a few people can understand Spanish these days right and these people these spanish-speaking people are members of the old elite right so nobody so those books and uh, pieces of literature are just there stuck in museums with nobody to translate them wow it's it's, it's quite interesting how fast a cultural a culture can change from the spanish to english, english. even though 333 years of spanish colonialism well, and just 50 years of American, American imperialism was so effective in just wiping away everything of the previous three mm-hmm. centuries, which is really interesting. That, that, that's why it's called a cultural genocide. Cultural genocide, first you, yeah. First you erase their... The, first you change the government. First you, you... How do you say this? Change the people's minds. And how do you change mm. the people's minds? Change the language. Exactly. So... that And World War Two was the last... I would say nail in the coffin to Spanish language in the Philippines. Exactly. Because, well, Spanish then was already an endangered language in, in, the Philippines. in, in yeah, pre-war Philippines, 1930s, right. spoken only by a few elites in Manila, centered mm. in Manila. Mm. After the, and uh, one of the tragic events of Philippine history, the Battle of Manila, wherein Americans used the brute force and flattened the city, mm. flattened the city, and a lot of the population was killed, close to half 
the population was killed, and with that mass death came the mass death of also the Spanish-speaking people. Elites, also. elites. They were all killed in the war. Right. So let's get to that because that's another important period in Filipino history. World 1941 War II. to forty-six or forty-five. Yeah, World War Two. World War Two, and. <laughs> My my, fa- I, I'm a little bit into World War Two history, and my favorite Gen- United States general is General Douglas MacArthur. Oh yeah, I and shall return, and I he did return. return. He did return. So tell us tell us that story. What happened to Philippines during well, World War Well, with II? my, uh, I'll tell my grandparents' story because mm. they, they they lived through it. Yeah, they oh, saw wow. the fighting, the the dying, wow. everything, so, the whole package. So I, I, in the story, I I love if you could add two things into it because there was this Japanese idea of being let's say Asian imperialism is better than foreign. Asia for Asians exactly could you tell us from your par- grandparents experience yeah. how that materialized in the Philippines and also what yeah. happened during the war well, and G- General Douglas MacArthur yes yeah my grandparents were there in northern Philippines at, at the time so it was December 7 1941 in Hawaii December 8 in the Philippines and, Pearl Harbor happened. Yeah, Pearl Harbor happened, and they had this uh, radio broadcast that, uh, like, they were listening to their daily radio programming by the day, and then the radio suddenly blurted out, Pearl Harbor has been bombed, Cavite Naval Base in the Philippines has been bombed. Mm. It happened at the same time, Pearl yeah. Harbor and... Same, same time, different time zones. Ah, okay. <laughs> Cavite Naval Base has been bombed. That's in Manila. Cavite, close to, close to Manila, very close to okay. Manila. Cavite is... Cavite Naval Base is like the fort guarding the entrance to Manila. Okay. Cavite Naval Base has been bombed. Pearl Harbor has been bombed. And the Japanese are landing in northern Luzon. Whoa. That, that was the news of the day. Okay. <laughs> and, of course, my grandparents were so... were, were shocked. And then uh, there were calls for drafting, drafting into the army then. Immediately? Yes. Oh. All able-bodied males mm. were... A lot of my relatives were there were drafted into... The Philippine Army, which was a subordinate command of the U.S. Army in the Philippines. Wow. So, so they lived through they lived through that, and they lived through that. And uh, one of the most grievous things they experienced was the inflation. I say the inflation. The economy completely collapsed at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they were still able to survive because. Uh, my grandparents had their own farms. Had their had their farms. If if I may interrupt you, I'm so sorry for this. Uh-huh. But y- this inflation happened after the entirety of Philippines had been conquered by Japan. Of course, a war brings itself uh, economic shocks by the start of the war. By the start of the war, they saw prices surge. The, so it was still American territory. Yeah, still okay. controlled by America. But of Got course, it. you have problems all over the place. Right. People are being drafted into the military. So. My grandmother would always note the inflation that was happening. Eggs can cost you up to, like, you know, Philippine pesos. I, I don't know the 1940s value, but it was exorbitant. Mm. But thankfully, they did not starve because they had their own farms back then. Right. They were a bit of the upper middle class right. family by then, so they didn't starve. While other families did starve in the Philippines uh-huh. under wartime conditions. So... Uh, my grandmother would always tell me, uh, late at night we always saw planes flying above and planes flying above and uh, we see them fighting in the air, dog fights. We dog can hear, fights? Yeah, like in, Japanese Zeros versus American, American Mustangs? Not Mustangs. I mean, we, don't, we didn't have Mustangs in the Philippines. We had the, we had the junk America has. Oh, like the older shitty planes. The older shitty planes. Okay. So, uh, 
the, uh, you have these old American planes versus the best that Japan can offer. Right. And my grandmother saw them fighting in the sky, smoke, Whoa. smoke uh, coming down from airplanes, crashing yeah. to the ground. She saw all of that, and later on, and later on, they heard sort of echoing in the hills outside. Nor- hills a bit far. You can see them by eyesight, but they're far. Them as in. Hmm? See them? Who do you mean by them? You can see the hills. My gra- ah, okay. grandparents can see the distant hills and mountains. It's still far, but you can see them. And you can hear cannons and gunfire echoing from those mountains. I mean, uh-huh. the Japanese were advancing. So the Japanese invaded from the north of yeah, Philippines? Yeah, from the north. From the north side? Yes. Okay, cool. The Japanese were advancing, and as the fighting gets closer, you could hear they could hear the echoes growing louder and louder. Right. Until... Until they finally entered their hometown. The Japanese entered their home t- <laughs> hometown. Uh-huh. Okay. And and all the uh, Philippine army forces, the United States forces, were ordered to retreat down to southern Luzon, Bataan, for a last stand. Uh-huh. The rationale was, hold out in that peninsula and the United States Navy will help. But there was no United States Navy. They've been bombed out in yeah, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the entire Pacific Fleet, almost the entire Pacific Fleet been bombed. So it was a sort of forlorn hope, a last stand. Ah, and General MacArthur was leading this? No, he, he was evacuated by oh. orders of President Roosevelt. To Australia? Yes, he was evacuated by then. But so, so at this point of time, it was like America has given up on the Philippines. Yeah. Technically. Technically. They were just like making a last stand in mm. Bataan, that uh, peninsula outside Manila. Right. So, so that was it. Uh, they, they were still, uh, my grandparents were still tuning in to American radio broadcasts about the resistance in Bataan. But then, uh, May, 8th of, 8th of May, yeah, Araw ng Kagitingan, the Day of Valor in the Philippines, mm. uh, they all cried when the radio crackled out, Bataan has fallen. The oh. last of the American and Filipino forces have surrendered oh. against the Japanese. And, it, and Bataan today is still, up, up to today, the largest surrender of American troops in history. In history, you lost like seventy-five thousand soldiers. Wow! Surrendered wow. <laughs> to the Japanese, and so was your grandmother's town by this time invaded or taken over by the Japanese? Mm-hmm. Was your grandparents' town taken yes, over by the Japanese? It was occupied by the Japanese. And how did they treat the civilians? Well, they they were so scared like they never they never. My grandparents would uh, were slapped by the Japanese because when they imposed this rule that when you when you meet some Japanese soldiers you have to do the Japanese bow and say kombawa the okay. Japanese words greetings. Okay. If you don't bow, they will slap you. Oh, <laughs> damn! And so- also, all the kids were rounded up, rounded up into the town hall and directed to attend mandatory Japanese classes, Japanese language. You see that tendency of a new occupier Power. to do the like you used the term cultural genocide uh-huh. immediately the moment they took take over a particular well, area in america it was through elite cooptation right and imposing public school system in mm. the japanese it was yeah. sort of brute force <laughs> true true yeah and my grandmother's uh, experience uh, then was then was uh, people of course did not surrender they uh, a lot of our neighbors, neighbors and uh, Filipino and American soldiers who escaped the Japanese in Bataan continued to fight as guerrillas. Guerrillas, okay. Guerrillas, yeah. And my grandmother, 
supported the guerrilla war effort. She made clothes for uh-huh. the guerrillas, and my grandpa grandfather was a runner for the guerrillas. Runner means bringing messages, messages and supplies okay. under uh, under pain of getting caught by the Japanese and executed. God damn! And uh, she often told me one of these stories, like one day. The Japanese authorities herded all the people into town, into the town plaza, and we will have a cultural performance, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, there was dancing, singing Japanese songs. Okay. Your typical, your typical cultural performance to win hearts and minds, but it didn't really win anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the Japanese announcer said, now we come to the best part of the program. And they were like, quiet, like, best part of the program? You dragged us all here. <laughs> and... And they got, and from backstage, they got a hooded man, a man with hood, he wore he, he like a sack on his head. Okay. Sack on his head, and they forced him to kneel in front of the stage, and then beheaded him with a samurai sword. What did this man do? He was a guerrilla. Oh. He was caught by the Japanese. He, it was like they were showing an example yeah, to the entire... Yeah, example. And my grandmother had nightmares that time when she oh, said... damn, dude. So can, can I ask you something? If, if you were to compare the Japanese occupation of, let's say, the Nankin and Manchuria with Philippines, Nankin, there was this really Brutal. overt racial superiority theory by the Japanese uh-huh. that other Asians are beneath them, subhuman, uh-huh. and all the uh-huh. atrocities in Nankin was justified based on that. Mm-hmm. Did something of a similar mindset, did they bring something like that to the Philippines too? Oh. For the Philippines, it was not driven by uh, racism. They, ra- they saw us rather as uh, benighted colonial subjects mm. wanting to be liberated, just like the Indonesians and the Vietnamese. Mm. Imagine, I know in Indonesia when the Japanese came, uh, they were treated as liberators. Like, hey, hey, somebody's get rid of the Dutch. We're so happy. The right. Indonesians were happy at first. Right. But when the Japanese started banning the display of the Indonesian flag, mm. banning the Indonesian language, banning public gatherings, the Indonesians knew that eh, things, are not things are not going to be well. Same with the Vietnamese. Ah. Same with the Vietnamese. Uh, the first, they welcomed the... First, they thought that, hey, somebody has booted out the French. But then this guy named Ho Chi Minh saw them as another colonial invader. And you know the story. That's Vietnam what they War. were. Yeah. So, for the Philippines, they saw us more as um, the poor colonial subjects of the Americans and Spanish. Ah. It was not driven by racism. But if you talk about total devastation, such as the Battle of Nanking, you can have the Battle of Manila, the second most destroyed city on earth after Warsaw. What about Dresden? Hmm? What about Dresden? Dresden, um, in terms of area destroyed, Manila was Even bigger. Warsaw was number one. It was flattened by okay. the Germans. Okay. Second was uh, Manila, flattened by, not the Japanese, mind you. Americans. Americans. They oh. used excessive force to retake the city. Oh, okay. And it re- was during the re- 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 while they were retaking. retaking, not while they were retreating. Not while retreating, because okay. Manila, at the time when the Japanese invaded, Manila was considered an open city. Open, it could, open city. It could not be held militarily. So mm. it was basically abandoned, intact. Okay. okay. Intact. And of course, the Japanese fortified it. When, when the Battle of Manila came in the end of the war, 1945, the Japanese made a last stand in the city. However, the Americans used excessive firepower. You mean carpet bombing? 
artillery, carpet bombing, naval bombardment. So this happened before Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yes, this happened for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay. So Manila ended up the most destroyed city in the Pacific. Mm, the Pacific theater. After uh, World War Two. So how long were you on the Jap- Japanese occupation? Uh, 1941 to 1945. So for four years, your grandparents lived under the Japanese occupation. Yeah. And they were supporting the local guerrillas, guerrillas. in the fight against it. I don't know. How does it feel? I don't know if I can how it's, it's the, how I can ask you this, but how does it feel to live under occupation during a wartime period? Well, or what was their experience of that? Well, my grandparents would always tell me we lived relatively comfortable lives because food was one of the top concerns. Of course, all farm activities stopped, mm. and the Japanese were seizing food shipments for their mm. own army. Mm. My grandmother would remember they would seize a. Uh, Seize large portions of our rice crops, our vegetable crops, and we got <laughs> so 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 little. All right. They seized practically everything to feed themselves. Of course. But they were still thankful that our the farm, the family farm, produced enough to keep to keep them fed. But for our neighbors who were landless, uh, it was a different story. They were begging for rice. Oh. So they lived relatively comfortable lives. But it was under fear and duress. And okay. also, uh, you have neighbors uh, neighbors who are starving, uh, because they're starving, and uh, they had to give, give them a, uh, some of their, what little rice they could keep or hide for themselves, because right. the Japanese confiscated the bulk of it. That's, that's war. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk about, let's continue on that. So, as far as I know, correct me if I don't, Japanese, they, the initial gains in the Asia-Pacific were so great that the Japanese took over almost the entire yeah. western side of China, uh-huh. Philippines, Indonesia, uh-huh. Papua New Guinea, uh, and Southeast Asia's Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, Cambodia, yes. Laos. They reached, Thailand was kind of supportive to the Japanese. But Thailand was kind of a part of the... Ax- no? no? No, they were... They were, they were how would I say this? Steamrolled by, steamrolled by Japan. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, we we want to stay neutral, but Japan said, oh, hell no, we're rolling through. <laughs> and okay. of course, the Thais were caught off guard and said, yeah, too late to resist at this point. Oh, was it like that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought like Thais were like complicit with the... Access they were not powers. complicit. They tried to maintain neutrality, neutrality. diplomatically, right. but the Japanese said, no. No, we're, we're taking over. We're, we're taking over. We're rolling through. Exactly. And they reached the border between <laughs> India and uh, Burma. Myanmar, Burma. Burma was part of in, in, in Indian, British India. India. They took over Burma. And it's interesting because we, most Indians don't realize this, but World War II actually happened in Indian soil, uh-huh. which is a state called Nagaland. They and reached India. They reached India. It's on the east side of India. And that's where the, that's the furthest the Japanese Advanced. would advance. And that was also the first time helicopter was used in warfare mm-hmm. to airlift injured soldiers uh-huh. out of Nagaland, which is also an British, interesting British, British yeah. India. I need to fact check that, but as I, I as far as I from my as far as I read, mm-hmm. that is true. But if you're not sure, fact check that. And do you know an another interesting thing? Mm-hmm. There were Indians who were fighting for the Japanese oh. against the British colonial India. So mm-hmm. this point, Indians fighting for British, British, Indians fought against Indians who were fighting against the colonial co- collaborators with the Japanese, 
And it was the Indian Subhash Chandra Bose. Mm-hmm. He's like kind of like uh, collaborators with the Japanese, and he was also highly respected as a really important freedom fighter t- well, in India today. In in the Philippines, we had this uh, we had this uh, interesting story story of uh, General Artemio Ricarte, Spanish name, right? Yeah. Artemio Ricarte was one of the few Philippine generals who did not surrender to the Americans during the Philippine American War. Ah, okay. So when the Americans finally took over the Philippines and cemented their power over the country, those few gen- generals, Philippine generals who did not surrender or did not choose to surrender out of sense of honor and pride, fled to different countries. Artemio Ricarte was one of them. He fled to the, to, to Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So when World War II came, the Japanese invaded, he went back to the Philippines. But now, this time, wearing a Japanese military uniform and with a Japanese samurai samurai sword sword on him. And and, uh, he genuinely believed that the Japanese were uh, uh, sort of anti-colonial, anti-colonial liberators. The Western imperialists. Yes. He genuinely believed that. And Mm. he genuinely, he stayed with the... Japanese forces in the Philippines until the end of the war, right. but he did not survive the war. He died of sickness. He, oh. when the Japanese were cornered into some jungle mountains right. north of the Philippines, of course you know there's no medicine, no food. He oh. succumbed to disease, and his grave was found just a few years after the war. Oh, but that's the thing. He he's one of the more mysterious figures in Philippine history. It's hard to judge him. For one, he did not surrender against the Americans. He fought to the bitter end. And he wanted self-nationhood for nationhood. the people of Philippines. And he went to Japan, settled there, became a Spanish teacher in Japan. Okay. Teaching Spanish language and Japanese. But then when the Japanese invaded the Philippines, he joined them. And he genuinely believed in their cause that they were these anti-colonial liberators. Like the ends justify... If the ends does not justify the means, uh-huh. then you can just So he is a sort of... Uh, Controversial, controversial figure, figure in Philippine history. history. Is he a traitor or a hero? That's a good question. Hard to judge. Yeah. So, and also, that's one of the more um, subtle things. Also, we have these more blatant collaborators. We call them Makapili. It's an acronym for Mak... I don't know. Makapili. Makapili. What is that? Is that a derogatory term? Or? It, it was a, it's a derogatory term in the Philippines. It's, okay. You mean it means you are a collaborator with the Japanese. Mm-hmm. These Makapilis were a sort of internal police, Philippine police force organized by the Japanese, and mm. their main jobs their main job was to be an informant to the Japanese. They would point out members of the town who were engaged in guerrilla mm-hmm. activities, and then you know what happens to the guerrillas. Oh, dude. So, um, Makapili in Philippine Filipino language is term for traitor. Traitor. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's interesting. So let's continue on with the Japanese story. So uh, this was like the high, the furthest Japan could spread. In India, in India. In, in all of uh-huh. the, in the Pacific. In all of Pacific theater. And from then on, the retreat started. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what, how, could you, could you carry on that story? Yes, so when my, when my grandparents, uh, when my grandparents uh, learned that the news of that the Americans were arriving, well, they were so overjoyed, like they couldn't hide their joy. And one day the Japanese suddenly disappeared from the streets. No, no more Japanese patrols walking around town. Hmm. But then, and also those airplane fights that didn't happen for three years happened again in the sky. Okay. <laughs> so there was always fighting again. And 
all this fighting again, and she uh, for three years, for the first time again in three years, airplane fights happen, dog uh-huh. fights again happen, bombings. Yes, uh-huh. and and the Japanese left uh, the home, her hometown, the Ilocos region, northern Philippines. They blew up the two main bridges. Like saving private rhymes. Yes, they blew up these two main bridges uh, connecting uh, the town to other regions. To slow down the Americans. To slow down the Americans, exactly. And when the Americans landed in the Philippines... Uh, they they landed in the south or the north? Multiple landings from ah, north and okay. south. And this is the moment when General Douglas MacArthur said, I shall return, yes. and he did return. Yes, and uh, my grandmother said, they all cried when uh, the radio broadcast was... Uh, Broadcasted like people of the Philippines, I have returned. Dude. He said, and they all cried in the living yeah, room. <laughs> dude, it's like it takes a lot of character to actually say something like that uh-huh. and actually do it. But why I, I respect the guy a lot. But actually, the Americans almost did not return to the Philippines. What? Why? What, what, what makes you that? There was a debate between Admiral Nimitz and General Douglas MacArthur mm-hmm. because, uh, but by the time of, uh, but but that time, the Jap- Japan was good as beat. I'm sorry. Japan was good as beaten. Oh okay. Well, I mean, all the major islands that all the major islands that can be used to strike Japan have been already occupied by America. Like Iwo, Iwo Jima, Jima and uh, what else? Um, this was Iwo, Jima was Iwo Jima. Yeah. Also Okinawa. Okinawa. Oh, yeah. Okinawa was already being attacked. Uh, Iwo Jima was captured. Japan's navy is practically no more. Mm. Uh, they can't defend themselves against the nightly bomber attacks in Tokyo. Yeah, Tokyo yeah. Japan was good as beat. Yeah. Like, mainland, I mean, main island Japan was being bombed at that uh-huh. point in time. So this was in the late 40s, early 45. Mm-hmm. No, late 44, uh, early 45. Early, late 44, uh, 45. Mm-hmm. And there was simply no military rationale to go back on the, to the Philippines. Like, for uh, Admiral Nimitz, oh, why waste men and lives in the Philippines? Uh, That's a good why, why, why? Just allow them to rot on the vine. Exactly. Then why did they? Japan cannot support them in any way. Exactly. Uh, they are isolated. There's, they have no hope of winning. So why don't why not leave them alone? That was uh, Admiral Nimitz' uh, stand on the issue. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but uh, General MacArthur insisted. No, we have to go back there. We have to finish the job. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know. It was uh, I, I read that in a journal article some time back, but it didn't explain uh, the nitty gritties of it. I can only speculate as why General MacArthur decided or decided to influence U.S. policy to go back to the Philippines when Admiral Nimitz, uh, the second in command in the Pacific, said, "Why?" I mean, what would have happened if the Americans did not go to the Philippines but not... still dropped the bomb on Japan? What would have happened? Well, it would be a loss of. Uh, I think it would be the lo- I think it would be symbolic for America. I mean, it would damage American credibility if they didn't go, they, back, to didn't the go back to the Philippines. Even if, even if military by military necessity alone, you can leave the Philippines behind. It, it, the Japanese would as beat. Yeah, but I think uh, it was for reasons of maintaining American prestige. Really? Whoa. Mm-hmm. Unless they unless they foresaw what would have happened, what what would happen in Vietnam. I didn't understand. But by that, uh, what do you mean? Well, perhaps, perhaps America or America pol- American policymakers already knew what was going to transpire in Vietnam. When the colonial power was displaced yes, and... The Philippines was a forward, was the, was the biggest forward operating base of America during the Vietnam War. 
Ah. Oh, I didn't know well, that. Most of the US firepower that was dropped in Vietnam came from the Philippines. Really? I didn't know that. Based in the Philippines. So, unless they saw some future military value in the Philippines, who knows? They might That's have not returned. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because a lot of lives could have been... American lives would have been... Spared. Spared. It would have spared. been spared if they did not attack... I mean, retake the Philippines and yeah. just drop the bombs on. Yeah. Maybe at that point of time, the bombs were not such a certainty. Maybe that Maybe. could have been I, I don't know. But we can only speculate from... Can I, true, you can only speculate, but that was the real big debate at that time between Admiral Chester Nimitz and MacArthur. Should we go back to the Philippines or not? So, how is MacArthur remembered by Fili- uh, Filipinos? Man, he's a war hero. He's like a uh, larger-than-life war hero. Is he kind of looked at as the liberator? Yes, I can say. And he does he not have the stigma associated with the colonial? No, not at all. He's like a godsend, like the burning justice of God to hit the Japanese. Right. He's a larger-than-life figure in the Philippines. Even now. Even now. And he's a symbol of Philippine-American friendship, mm. especially in its times when, of course, here we have China yeah. messing up the neighborhood. Filipinos, especially historians, look up to MacArthur, General MacArthur, as the symbol of uh, Philippine-American friendship and the alliance that has mm. held for 75 years, that good is... or bad. He's a symbol. He's a national he's icon. He's a symbol. He kind of symbolizes... For me, it's that I shall return, and he did return, which makes yeah. me very... I kind of respect that uh-huh. resolve of his character, that he did that. He did that. Yeah. Despite is... the military, despite his second... In command. Command saying, why? Exactly. <laughs> that was a good question. That was uh-huh. a really difficult job to convince uh-huh. so many Americans to sacrifice their lives Twice. when there wasn't another option where they didn't have to. Yes. Interesting. Uh- Unless, but as for me, maybe they knew or they had some inkling of what was to happen in, in Vietnam. Vietnam maybe. That's why they came back to the Philippines. Uh, that's, that, if, if that was the case, then that's insane foresight. Like really, insane foresight. really good foresight. So, Americans came back. Mm-hmm. World War II entered 1945. Mm-hmm. Philippines war. Became, post-war, Philippines became an independent country in '46. Yes. What was the incentive for the Americans to give you independence? Incentive number one, number one we were, number one they promised our elites and after a period of a Commonwealth period from nineteen twenty twenty year Commonwealth nineteen forty six nineteen forty six minus twenty mm-hmm. maybe nineteen twenty six or twenty seven, they promised us independence after a Commonwealth period period of twenty years, uh, that was their promise to the to, our, to the elites at the time, and also. But I thought the elites did not want to govern themselves. What changed at oh, this point? I have some internal debates on that matter. Okay. I mean, if you were given the chance to lead your own country, to be the president or to be the top top head honchos of your own country versus living as an ordinary U.S. citizen in a colony, what would you choose? Mm. This is a good question for them. Um, of course, they wanted to be the head honchos of their own country rather than to live subordinate under some larger power right so i think it's just my speculation that uh, that for me that's why they lobbied for independence at the time so that was that was it they just wanted to be in charge of their own country and they did and they they had their own country 1946 yeah 4th of july 1946 oh you, you shared the independence day with america yes but uh, somewhere down the, the line, in yeah, in 1960s, one of our presidents, uh, 
president uh, president uh, Diosdado Macapagal mm-hmm. noted that that why uh, why is why is 4th of June why why is US Independence Day celebrated much more in the Philippines than Philippine Independence Day he noted that really? why are why what why are they by whom the president Amer- the Americans living in Philippines Well, he noted he noted that uh, this is in the 1960s. He noted mm-hmm. that the Independence Day celebrations in the U.S. Embassy were were much larger and much more. Many more Filipinos attended the Independence Day ceremony of America in the United States Embassy than the Philippines' own Independence Day. <laughs> That's really strange for me. Yeah, and Fourth of July, 1946, same same day, July 4. Yeah. So both embassies, would, both the presidential palace well, and mean, the U.S. embassy gave more like, people were more interested in American Independence Day than Philippine Independence Day. That's really strange, isn't it? Yeah, he noticed it as president. No, yeah. Almost no guests in the, the presidential yeah. palace and and uh, and the U.S. embassy just embassy just a short ride car ride away. It's packed with guests, packed mm. with ambassadors, packed with Filipino elites. Mm. The pres in the country's own presidential palace is empty. Mm. So he changed it to 12 June, 12 of June, 12 June 1898. It's a historical event in the Philippines. Where, revolution. Yeah, first the, revolution. Yeah, and when the Philippine flag was uh, first raised, uh. first raised, but. We knew how the revolution happened. It failed. Uh-huh. It failed. But then I think it was one of the attempts to make a Philippine identity separate from America. From America. And, uh, and now in all official publications, Philippines celebrates its Independence Day on 12th of uh, 12, 12 June. Uh, But in 1946. Re- no, no, no. 1898. So that... In official publications, it okay. says 12 June 1898. The Philippines. Like a symbolic day. It's a symbolic day. Okay. But for, for, but legally speaking, it's 4th of July 1946. 1946. Wow, that's interesting. So let's carry on the story. So Philippines becomes an independent state. Yeah. 50s, 60s happen. Then you, then the, you have a character. Your let's like. Suharto in Indonesia. Oh yeah, you have I forgot the name. Could you remind me? Ferdinand Marcos. Ferdinand Marcos, who kind of acts like a quasi dictator. He is a dictator. As a dictator, my, my parents lived through him. The mm-hmm. whole package of him, their whole twenties. My parents were born nineteen sixty two. He was president for twenty years. Twenty years. So can you draw parallels between Suharto and Marcos? Suharto and Marcos. Why were like two newly independent post colonial countries? Two dictators were able to take power. They they were so mm-hmm. close to each other. Yeah, I, I I think there's yeah you'll be able to draw parallels better than me. Well, what, what do you think? As for me, I as for me, I Philippine dictatorship is more closely aligned with uh, those in Latin America, like Augusto Pinochet. Pinochet, uh-huh. really? In Chile. Yeah, well, like pro America. Yeah, the Shah of Iran also. Yeah, uh, he's he was also nicknamed the Asian Shah. Asian. Oh, really? Yeah, like Pahlavi you're talking about. Yeah. Dude, it's so, it's so crazy because I had a podcast with Iran, I had a podcast with Chile, and now it's... See, it's connected. We, they have Pinochet in Chile. Yeah, that's really Shah in Iran and President Marcos in the Philippines. So, um, how did he become... How did he become a dictator? How, how did he become corrupt? So, uh, in the early days of his presidency, he was considered to be a good president. Mm-hmm. A lot of programs flourished under his rule, self-sufficiency. Was he like a puppet for the United States in a way? In a way, yes. Like, well, 
pretty much all Philippine presidents were, except President Duterte now. As of now. But he's in deep shit. Okay, we'll get to him. He's in deep shit now. All presidents of the Philippines were U.S. puppets, but Marcos took the cake. Ah, Takes the cake. For 20 years. Mm -hmm. Well, if his presidency ended early, if he stuck to the normal four-year term... Maybe he could have been remembered as one of the better presidents in Philippine history. Mm -hmm. However, he did not. Um, uh, as you can see, Marcos, uh, Marcos, come uh, on his background comes from a local, uh, a local elite, uh, local elite family. He he was a political nobody before he started politics. He was not one of those American-educated old elites or the Spanish mm -hmm. <laughs> Spanish era elites. No, he was. Uh, shall we say came from a middle class family okay uh, was involved in local politics in the northern Philippines okay and slowly he rose the way to, he, ro he worked his way to the ranks to, to becoming president uh -huh. because I think uh, back in the time regionalism uh, reg regionalism was a very uh, was a very strong factor immediately post-independence you mean yes okay. regionalism I mean Uh, there was most of the Philippine presidents came from southern Luzon, which is where Manila is. Yeah, where Manila is, most of the elites and the oligarchy is, and of course this has a lot of social ills, the, similar to uh, how would I say this, those communist movements in Cuba and Latin right. America. I mean, I mean, uh, communist insurgency in the Philippines is very much the same as the communist insurgencies in Latin America, FARC. Yeah. Fart in Colombia. Uh, ah. Uh, those Fidel Castro, these people fighting against social injustices. Right. And uh, uh, Philippines had their version of this. Yes, it's it's the same. I mean, we I told you, we were under uh, the Spanish system of political values and political rule. Mm. So it's when communist movements erupted in Latin America, the same would also happen in the Philippines because it's the same story. Mm. So, so going back, Mark, President Marcos... Uh, President Marcos was seen, I think, by the Filipino people, the type of an alternative to the old elite. Who Because he, he was not one of them. He was not one He's of like them. He's like Donald Trump of the time. Yeah, <laughs> but he was not, I don't think he was a populist, but he was not one yeah. of them. So An outsider. An outsider. So he got to, he got, he got what he wanted. He became, pres he became president. But here's where the bad thing happens. Being not a member of the old elite, you have to create your own network of cronies. Ah. I mean... The American, uh, the old elite in Manila already had their network. They had their, they had the judges in control. They had the businesses under their control. Right. They're all like one big family. And President Marcos is an outsider, so he wanted to create his own network of mm. uh, of cronies separate from the cronies of the old elite. So, and so that was so that's what happened. He started to undo state institutions for his own doing, mm. although these state institutions were by and large uh, still connected to the old elites, the old elite, the traditional elite. They functioned. They gave a sense of stability and accountability to the country. But if you create your own parallel network. Parallel network of judges, businessmen, generals, soldiers, and undo these state institutions. What would happen? Chaos, a social coup. chaos. A coup? As in Latin America, that's what usually happens when someone kind of shakes um, up the system. Shakes up the system. Did it happen in the Philippines? Well, at the later part of his reign. Ah, uh, okay. But but what happened was 
you, you undid the institutions that maintained government stability for the time. And the only way to get into the loop, into the system, was to know somebody in the system. Mm. There was no meritocracy at the time. Ah. So... My, my mother knew it. My mother knew it because my mother is about is a senior officer in the Central Bank of the Philippines. And okay. she uh, told me, you know what? The only way that you could get a job back in back at the time was to know somebody in the loop, in the Marcos network. Oh. And thankfully, yeah. one of her distant uncles was a judge mm-hmm. who, who, according to mom's words, received large payouts from <laughs> above. Oh, okay. And this judge walk her, walked her through the system. Our distant uncle walked her through the system. Uh-huh. So it was so hard to get a job because in order to get a job, you had, you had a decent career, you had to know someone from within the network that Marcos was trying to propagate. Right. And this just encourages nepotism and corruption. Everything bad about it. Neo- nepotism. Nepotism. Corruption, of course. Yeah. And the economy stagnated. Exactly. Because these cronies, of course, stole lots of money from state industries and businesses. Uh, economy stagnated. Jobs were non-existent. And jobs were almost non-existent. That's right. why people started going abroad in the 1970s because of this. So can, can I just interrupt you and ask you a question? Because the 70s was also a time where a lot of... No, a few Asian countries mm-hmm. were really able to use the manufacturing boom and really fast-track their economy. Japan, South Japan, Korea. South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore. Mm-hmm. The four Asian tigers. Yeah. F- from till this point, before the dictatorship, Philippines also looked like a really good candidate to be one of yeah. those. Because it has a great English-speaking population, very pro-America, and cheaper labor compared to mm-hmm. uh, the Western countries. Everything looked kind of set for Philippines to join this industrial fast-tracking growth with the other countries. But Philippines failed to do failed, that. Yeah. Would you attribute that to this mismanagement by the government? Or is there any other reason towards it? Um, the, bad thing of being, uh, the bad thing of being so pro-America is that America... Uh, how do I say this? America would want to open liberal trade, free trade, but then how can your fledgling economy compete with America? And I mean, our markets were opened and liberalized, but because of being so open and being so liberalized, we could not compete against America, American American products, American companies. American companies had free flow into the Philippines, cars, oh. cigarettes, consumer goods. There was no incentive to develop industries, ah, and also, and also our politicians, let's see, elites, profited from this situation. They were the middlemen of this trade. They facilitated nice. uh, imports from America. For example, I I want to own a car. I I entered the car business. I'm a politician. I entered the car business. Why would I want to start a Philippine car company if I can make profits importing cars from the United States into the Philippines? I get a hefty cut from it. Right. And Japan, South Korea, they didn't do that. They had some kind of yeah, some areas to entry for American goods. Yes, uh, protectionism. Protectionism but was all, there. Yes, that's oh. why they were able to develop the car industry, electronics industry, so on and so forth. But in oh. the Philippines, we were so open, so open to trade, so open to, uh, committed to this free market that 
There's no incentive to there's make no your own stuff. There's no incentive to make your own stuff. And wow. our politician, politicians and their business links profit from importing stuff. Right. I never thought like that. I thought, like, I, from what I've been taught, <laughs> free liberal, liberalism, open market is always good for everybody. But the Philippine example kind of shows that it's not. If it's, you want to develop indigenous uh, yes. industries that can produce value in the global market. Yes, that, that's that's why uh, that's why our industries never really took off because of that. Import everything. What about now? What do you guys do? You have any sort of special industries? In... Well, uh, Philippine industries uh, small, so to speak. I mean, we have shipbuilding, Ma- manufacturing, manufacturing. I mean. the, probably the largest manufacturing sector in the Philippines would be shipmaking, uh-huh. shipbuilding. Third or fourth largest after China, Japan, Korea, Philippines. But if you look at the numbers, just look at the graph. China produces the most of the world's ships. Mm-hmm. In a graph, they would appear super long, like mm. in a twelve foot, in a twelve inch scale, they would be like twelve inches. Oh, okay. Japan would be like seven inches. Ah. Korea would be like four inches. Philippines top four spot one millimeter. <laughs> one millimeter. Yeah, because most of the world's ships come from those three countries: China, Japan, Korea. That's it. Philippines is number four, but imagine the gap. Yeah. So. Wow. So we have a major shipbuilding industry, but it's not really major compared to the shipbuilding industries of uh, of those three countries. Right. Also, we have a lot of smaller industries, for example, uh, chip building, yes, microchip building. But uh, these microchips are not the high-tech chips you find in your iPhone uh-huh. or uh, computer. These are low-end chips for, like, uh, what? Low-end chips, like, for... Digital watches, right? Low-end manufacturing, right? Uh, what else? You you probably know this in India. Uh, you are also a BPO giant. Uh, business processing, Process outsourcing. outsourcing. Yes, yeah. call centers because we have a large English-speaking population. We became the business outsourcing capital of the world. We mm-hmm. competed against India, mm-hmm. but now there's the threat of AI and automation, exactly. and people will become unemployable in a few generations. Exactly. I'm betting on it. Not in a few generations. I think by the end of our generation, just well, that's how quickly things are moving on. So, we yeah. So and and uh, our business, our economy is still largely agrarian. Agrarian, still largely agrarian. What's the main product? Main product, rice, coconut. Dude, you, you guys love coconut. Second largest producer after Indonesia. Indonesia. Rice, coconut, pineapples, tropical fruits, mm-hmm. these sort of things. But but to be honest, these things aren't don't break in that much money. Yeah, agri-sector, <laughs> even though it employs the most amount of people, does not bring in enough for the GDP to be... It doesn't rake in enough much, that much money and those industries aren't exactly innovative. True. Innovative in the sense that, well, shipbuilding could be an exception, but innovative in the sense that if you want to manufacture a product, for example, a, a jet engine, mm-hmm. how, may, how many people do you need to design, to build, to test, and to assemble that engine? How many skilled specialists do you need? Right. Like you need engineers, you have material science... Right. So you need machinists, you need aeronautics, aeronautics engineers, a whole lot of a whole army of trained people to build this sophisticated product. Right. But in the Philippines, if your industry is simply based on growing pineapples, growing rice, that's not exactly innovative, and that doesn't that doesn't bring a lot of money, and it doesn't contribute to your human intellectual capital. Exactly, and. Is this the reason why the migration out of Philippines started in the 60s yes, apart and 70s? From, apart from cronyism of the Marcos era, mm-hmm. lack of jobs too. 
Maybe, mm. yeah, yes. And my aunt, a lot of my uh, aunties and uncles went to Saudi Arabia as uh, oil workers and nurses. Mm. Dude, that's the thing. Filipino nurses are quite famous all over the world. Well, it was... Okay, blame America. <laughs> Why? Well... Isn't that, isn't that kind of a good thing? Blame, blame, blame America. Well... As I told you, as I told you, the only resource the Philippines has in exploitable quantities is our people. Mm-hmm. And when America came in, they came into the Philippines, they founded the first nursing schools in the country. I mean, the Spanish, of course, they had doctors. They, uh, they founded the Universidad de Santo Tomas, which was the oldest medical school in the country. But they served only the elites, mm. the rich people who can afford uh, afford them. America, however, opened an entire network of public schools, public universities, and the first nursing schools in the country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, the I'm sure you're familiar with the Spanish flu in the Spanish. Yeah, flu. 1918. That's, yeah, 1918. That's when the nursing tradition in the Philippines kicked up. Mm, as a response to the Spanish flu? Yeah, they imported Philippine nurses from the Philippines to serve in Where? America. Ah. Of course, nurses were dying, dying, shortage of the doctors, etc. For real? So, That's interesting. So where do you get your nurses? Philippines. Wow. And it became institutionalized. It became... It became... Nurses became one of the country's leading exports. exports. Leading uh-huh. to what Prince Philip of... He's dead... Prince Philip of the United Kingdom, uh-huh. when he visited a British a hospital in the United Kingdom, and he saw all of the nurses were Filipinos. He said, "Man, the Philippines should be half empty by now." <laughs> Damn, he said that. He said that on TV. <laughs> because all the nursing staff were Filipinos. Wow, that's kind of true, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Imagine the nineteen eighteen uh, p- pandemic kicked this off. Yeah, that's one good thing from the pandemic, in a way, isn't it? Kick this off. Yeah, the United States imported loads of nurses from the Philippines. Are the nurses mainly female or male too? Female. Female. Uh, Largely female. Mm. Also male, but female dominates. Dominate. Female dominates. And it became an institution. So when uh, when the demand for nurses in the United States ended, the uh, pandemic ended, the, their schools still remain in the Philippines. The nursing... Mm. The system for mass producing nurses was still there. A conveyor line of nurses. Yes, and they found new. We found markets in Europe and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But now, same thing happens again. Now, yeah, same on. thing happens again. Now, the United States, uh, United States government embassy announced that we are fast tracking visa applications for Philippine nurses. Really, it's in their embassy page. Oh. and fast tracking green card uh, status. For Philippine nurses, come to the United States now. Damn. That's exploitation at its finest, in a way. Well. But people are getting employed too. People are getting employed, but they're dying like flies in the United United States States. from the uh, pandemic. So Interesting. Wow. So, there you have it. That's why there are lots of nurses in the Philippine nurses. And mm -hmm, it's just about it. What else? Uh, about, About migration to... Migration to Hawaii, yes, it's a different thing too. Mm-hmm. Right? Personally, I my family history is so tied with this migration to Hawaii thing. Uh, what what you, you said they were doing the sugar canes, yes. sugar cane fields there. Yes, I saw the I saw the sugar cane fields. It was I don't know. It was this the place stank of stank of slave labor. Really, 
Imagine all these rundown huts, rusty yeah. tools, mm. and all these sugarcane plants taller than me. <laughs> I, I, I saw all the fields, and it smelled of slavery, really. Oh. But but then again, but then again, after uh, my my great my great grandfather was the first guy over there in Hawaii. First guy as in Na- first person in the, the family Philippines. to go to Hawaii from your family. Yes. Okay. Then. Then it it started a uh, it started a chain migration oh. that ended with my parents, not my parents. It it ended with the generation of my parents. Ah, okay, and th- they did go to Hawaii. A lot of them. I mean, I'm sure sixty percent of my family is in Hawaii. Really? And we were the unlucky ones who got left behind. Oh, <laughs> well. So do you go visit them in Hawaii? I visited that? them uh, when I was in the navy, okay. mm. and it it was a life changing experience, really. Changed practically my worldview. Do, do they still keep that Filipinoness with them? The older generation does. Uh-huh. Yes, but the younger generation, people my age, they don't give shit about the Philippines. They're American. Like, yeah, like okay, uh, okay. My parents are from there, so what? I'm right. living my life here in Hawaii. Right. And do they move further eastward to the mainland? Yeah, they, they go to the mainland. I, I, but for the most part, all of them are in Hawaii, and some of them are in California. Mm. Yeah. But this Hawaii experience was so life-changing. It, what did you abs- absorb the most from it? I changed my life plan. <laughs> Why? What, what, what was so... Back in the day, back in the day, when before I went to Hawaii, I dreamed of becoming one of the best and toughest Philippine defense and security experts. Okay. I had. I am as confident that I had what it take. I had what it takes. I had. So I mean. I was among the best. Okay. And the, the best analyst the military can throw. Uh-huh. But when I what when I was packed aboard a ship and in going to Rimpac 2018, landed in Hawaii, I was so shocked by the difference in the standard of living I between Philippines and Hawaii. Okay. So you're saying Hawaii was better? Infinitely better. Than average Hawaiian citizen standard of living was infinitely better than... Standard of living was... I know Hawaii is not a perfect place. I, there are homeless people going dumpster diving. I saw right. it. But look at the quality of services. I mean, I was there for a month. I saw how they lived. I saw their problems. I saw what kind of social services they had. The opportunity... Especially the opportunities for fun and leisure. Mm-hmm. The environment... It sort of broke me inside. I, I was like, why should I sweat it out in the Philippines when I can work harder to go here? Hmm. And what changed after that in you? What? How did you change your priorities after that? I left the military. I wanted to study abroad. Ah, uh, okay. Because... Had I not uh, had I not uh, went to Hawaii, I'm, I might have been working for I, I might be working now for our National Security Council. Uh-huh. Our National Security Council, Council reports directly to the president. Ah, okay. It's high office. You mean like a diplomat, like and sort of diplomat, mm-hmm. defense strategist. Right. I I had a job opportunity then before I left the military. Work for the National Security Council. But the wages were just so damn low. Mm. I mean, I was interviewed. I was interviewed by the whole Security Council. 
how many were they? 12 people mm-hmm. representing different departments, food, health, defense, education, right. national security, the whole bunch. Right. And I was like grilled for three hours. I was accepted. We like you. We're in. You're in the highest uh, security decision-making council of the country. Wow. But when the wages came in, my God, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't spend five goddamn years in the military for this. Oh. This, this level of wages. It was it so, was so low for the amount of time you put in. So, how would you convert, Mimi? It wasn't even 35,000 rubles. What do you mean? Isn't that like the highest level of bureaucracy in the country, at least in the defense? It wasn't, I mean, how low, how converting 35,000 rubles a month is so That's, low. Like people work in call centers in Moscow and make that money. Exactly, and... I'm high, I I had a lot of courses from the I had a lot of training courses from the Department of Foreign Affairs. I had strategic studies courses from the Royal the Australian Navy. Wow. And you give me this entry level wages for your college grads. Exactly. I said no. It's time to go study abroad. <laughs> yeah, that's why I went to study abroad and this Hawaii experience completely changed changed my mind. That's mm. uh, why should I sweat it out in this poor country if i can if i have all that it takes to move to a better place exactly. it changed it changed my mindset exactly dude I, there's one question which i should have started with which i forgot why is philippines called philippines <laughs> uh, philippines called philippines it's named after uh, el rey felipe dos king philip ii of spain of spain yes and the name stuck you guys didn't plan on changing it after the spanish left or maybe force of habit force of habit force of habit mm. uh, well there was this proposal to rename the philippines maharlika but Boy, that's a proper asian name maha means like grandiose grandeur big. yeah but it didn't really took off yeah philippines is a cool name but you know how difficult it is to spell it every time i spell philippines, philippines. there's like two p's uh-huh. just one i or h i after an h so it's, I always misspell Philippines. It's, it's, uh, the old name was Las Islas Filipinas. The islands of Philippines. Uh-huh. Mm. And uh, Filipinas, it was shortened to Filipinas. Uh, okay. So let's get, go to the concluding areas. Let's talk some modern uh-huh. part. So let's talk about the South China Sea. South China Sea. Because you are, I think you're the most qualified person I would ever meet to talk about it. Man, I've been marinating in this issue for five years and I'm, sometimes I'm sick of it. It's like eating biryani three times a day. I do it. I eat biryani three times a day. Three times a day. <laughs> Try to eat straight for five years. Oh, then I won't. <laughs> this again. Well, South China Sea issue. Just give us an intro what? for the person who doesn't know what's happening there. Well, how would I begin it uh, with, with the legalities? Mm, let's have the geography. Well, oh man, I've start. How many papers have I started with <laughs> these traditional lines? Okay. Well, you know, well, in a nutshell, the South China Sea contains like fifty percent of the world's shipping mm, between fifty global, global, global. Fifty major ports in the region are Shanghai. Yes. Uh, well. The bottleneck of that region is the Malacca Strait. Malacca Strait. And as I told you, 50% of the world shipping, world shipping goes there. Also, it has uh, substantial amounts of oil and gas mm-hmm. and fisheries for starving people. <laughs> but it's a major fishing ground. Okay. So, 
different. Uh, so, as you know, many countries have uh, overlapping claims over the region. China, most infamously, Vietnam as well, Philippines has it, Malaysia has it, Brunei has it too. And each of these countries have different bases for their claims. China claims it on history. Hmm. Historical claims. It has been part of Chinese, uh, the Chinese nation for since time immemorial, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Vietnam also has historical claims. Philippines, we base our claims on UNCLOS, uh, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. It is like one nautical mile from your... 12 nautical tw- miles. Sorry, 12 nautical miles from yeah, your... 12 nautical miles. And I'm not so sure from Malaysia's claim and uh, Brunei's Brunei, claim. Right. But I'm sure they... I'm sure more or less they follow UNCLOS. So you have over, overlapping claims. Now, for the fun part, China has been using its military muscle... To edge everybody out and claim the area for themselves, mm-hmm. for a number of, for a variety of reasons, for China it's all about uh, security and projecting power. Yeah, security. Because if you go back to China's history and uh, prior and to the start of their what they would call century of humiliation, nineteenth century, all these threats, all these Western barbarians came came by sea. Mm. And to the English, yes, seaborne, seaborne threats. Right. So this, this is their what I would say chosen trauma in academic terms. This trauma has so pervaded their thinking that it's always a part of their rhetoric. Really. In the West, their chosen trauma is the Holocaust. Right. Like we will never do something. We'll never kill never the Jews again. again. It's so terrible. Never again. Never again. For China, we will never let the Western barbarians trample us again. Through the South China Sea. Yeah, through the South China ah. Sea. So for China, their thinking of for the South China Sea is security, ah. for security and territorial integrity, because it's also connected with the Taiwan issue. Exactly. And for the Philippines. It's more of our resource security because 100% of our trade passes through that area. Uh, And I'm sure more than 75% of our foodstuffs comes from the South China Sea. So fisheries. Fisheries. So for China, it's about security and national prestige. For the Philippines, it's a question of resources and sustenance. So so there you have it. And that's that's where the dispute branches out into so many complexities right you have energy exploration you have fisheries you have military you have political aspects of it so one by one i can i can give you an informed opinion i won't say i'm an expert okay but i can give an informed opinion of these things okay so i don't know i just like to go on a tangent why isn't taiwan also involved in this do they also have a claim taiwan is taiwan is taiwan has claims in the South China, South China sea. sea too. But for one, <clears throat> but but the fun thing is, China does not oppose Taiwan's claims. What? Because they're considered to be their own claim. Yeah. Because they consider Taiwan to be a part. Yeah, of... and if we ever retake Taiwan, all of Taiwan's holdings in the South China Sea will go to uh, go to us. Mm. Especially the largest island there, Itoaba, is occupied by Taiwan. Oh, okay. So if Taiwan were to fall to China, Itoaba automatically falls to them, and it's the largest island there. <laughs> Okay, so which which of these particular countries, which which side does the United States support the most? Well, well, we, in the Philippines, we would like to believe the United States loves us. <laughs> no, but the United States has been quite amb- ambiguous in this mm. because they know that they don't want to be dragged into a third world war with China right. in the South China Sea. However. However, we all we all understand that the United States simply wants to maintain dominance in the Pacific. 
nothing else. They, 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 as a country, they have only one interest, it, 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 and it's to stay number one. Right. So. And they haven't had a challenge for that for they the past 30 years. For the past 30 years. But now so they do. That now they do. They hit a stumbling block with China. Exactly. So the United, the United States on paper wants, uh, says it supports its allies in the region, like Japan, like South Korea, Taiwan. the Philippines, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand. But we all know they have one interest, which means, which means to stay number one in the region. And also for the Philippines, we have this very asymmetric defense relationship with the United States. Asymmetric. When you say an alliance, it's like give and take. Yeah, but there's no giving. We're freeloader, mm. the United States. And free that freeloading position of the Philippines in the South China Sea is a result of many different factors. First off... First off, uh, we had United States bases back in the day, right. from 1898 to 1991. Oh, till the end of the Cold War. Yes, there were how many people? Three big United States bases in the Philippines. Right. First is in Central Luzon. What is this? Uh, Clark Airfield, Clark Air Base. Okay. Second would be Sangli Naval, Sangli Naval Base, Cavite. Okay. I, I work there. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a naval base. And uh, uh, Subic Naval Base. Uh-huh. Most of the firepower that was thrown into Vietnam was stationed in those bases. Oh. All the napalm came from Philippines. Well, I don't know if their US planes can reach from Clark Air Base to uh, Vietnam, but I'm sure their aircraft carriers were ah. based there. Oh, okay. Their troop ships were based uh, there. I mean, naval power was based there. Every, yes, we were the largest uh, US uh, forward operating base during the Vietnam War. So, where was I? So basis, yes. Yeah. So if so, question: uh, If you had three of the largest United States bases in the world in your own territory, why would you build your own military? Exactly. It's kind of South Korea, Japan. Japan has that neutrality clause. Yes, but for the Philippines, why? Why build up your own? Why beef up your own military if the United States is already there? It does make sense. Exactly. They can do the heavy lifting for you. And they are happy to do it as long as you let them put bases in your territory. That's a different thing. It's a separate issue. Uh-huh. Second, second would be our internal political situation, going back to the Marcos era. Right. So, so after President Marcos, fast forward, when President Marcos was deposed through a coup, 1986 People Power Revolution. And was that when that first woman... Yes, first woman president, president. Gloria Aquino, came into power. Right. She, the, the armed forces of the Philippines was already tainted, was tainted by the Marcos regime. The, the Marcos regime used the military as a tool of oppression, just like I'm sure you know Savak in Iran. The secret police who kills political dissidents. Oh, they're called the Savak? Savak. Savak. I, I'm not aware of that. But... The, the, the Marcos regime used the military as a secret police to kill dissidents. Oh, and committed lots of human rights abuses, all in the name of of supporting the regime, uh-huh. and it's it's a colonial tradition actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the Philippine military was not designed as a national defense force. It was to control the population. It was designed to suppress rebellions. Mm. It it did not it did it unlike the United States Army, which was descended from a colonial militia to fight the British. A Philippine military descended from the Spanish military units in the Philippines whose purpose was to suppress rebellions and mm. keep the elite in power. All right. So that tradition, tradition carried on. It was 
it was uh, used as a tool of the elite to stamp down on the opposition. Right. So, going back, going back then, the military was tainted by the Marcos regime. And so, uh, the new civilian president, Cory, President Cory Aquino, made everything in her power to keep the military weak. You control their budget. Mm, you like put that. it in the constitution. Education will be the top priority of the state, not defense. Mm. So, and you don't need to invest because the United States, States got your back all the time. But, but when the United States left in 1991, oh, big problem. Oh. So, yeah, so education has a top budget, not defense. Actually, the Department of Defense is number four in the budget list of the Philippines. That's low. Low, yeah. <laughs> and since we are all, since the Philippine military is an all volunteer force, ah. imagine. The defense budget, when you maintain an all-volunteer force, the lion's share of the budget goes to... Wages. Wages, pensions, allowances, ah, perks. Right. 75% of the defense budget goes to allowances, So you wages, can't invest in... Um, people. Um, no, you can't invest in weapons. Weapons. Right. So you already, have a, you already have a tiny budget for defense, as right. limited by the constitution. Right. And you have an all-volunteer army, which further saps whatever remaining budget you have. Yeah. So... You have a weak military. Third would be our own mindset towards military professionalization. It's so stupid. When you say military professionalization, you think of building your armed forces into a lean, mean fighting machine. But in the Philippines... Do you guys have that necessity to build it into a lean, mean fighting machine? Right now, yes. Right, because of China's exertion of power. But the problem is our mindset towards uh, military professionalization would be to give the military lectures on human rights (laughs) and gender equality. Okay. Well, the military is not there to give uh, enemies of the state a human rights warning or a, hey, you're violating the state. They're out there to kill. So the thing is, instead of improving the institution's capacity to fight, you're making them inutile by showering them these human rights lectures and uh, rule of law lectures. We we don't condone barbarism in the military, but it opens up this approach to security sector professionalization opens up avenues for corruption, mm. opens up avenues for mendicancy towards the United States. Right. And the uh, last thing, uh, fourth, fourth would be mendicancy. The fourth issue would be mendicancy. Why would you buy top-end military gear when the United States showers you its junk all the time? Junk? What do you mean by junk? Garbage. Military like garbage. Old weapons. Vietnam War-era weapons. They... Gave it to you for free. I, I didn't yeah, gifted for free. Because they wanted... Because they're all their junk. Okay. I've been in one of those ships and it is trash. <laughs> Imagine. Oh. So you, your ship was like a retired American vessel? It wasn't... Yes. It wasn't even a warship, so to speak. Okay. It was a Coast Guard patrol vessel. Ah. A 40-year-old one at that. Okay. And since the United States said, eh, they're junk, let's give it to the Philippines. We got them in a bargain price. Mm-hmm. Just a symbolic price of, of $6 million isn't... It's, well, a real warship costs $21 million. Mm-hmm. We got one. We got ours for $6 million. <laughs> Okay. A 40-year-old Coast Guard patrol vessel that we painted navy gray and made believe it was a frigate, a real warship. Okay. Mendicancy. Why would you, uh, why would you expend so much time and effort 
convincing policymakers to increase the budget when America gives you still usable trash freebies freebies yeah that makes sense so so we're in a really bad position in the South China Sea we're the underdog yeah we are the underdog and uh, so let's talk about the most important like the most interesting character there are two interesting modern day Filipino characters one is Manny Pacquiao oh yeah that guy (laughs) I think he represents Philippines more than anyone at this point of time in history probably he's a national icon yeah he's a national icon he's the most recognizable name from the Philippines yeah and let's talk about your president Oh, that guy. That guy. That guy, who's also an interesting character. Manny Pacquiao, well, Manny Pacquiao uh, embodies embodies the hopes and dreams of a lot of Filipinos. Rags to riches dream. Mm -hmm. He's similar to those matadors in Mexico. Mm. Matador, bullfighting. Bullfighters, yeah. To quote matadors, bullfighting is a a pile of riches guarded by horns. (laughs) Same way with boxing. Yeah. Boxing in the Philippines is a pile of riches guarded by fists. <laughs> True. He's a rags to riches story and he made his wealth through boxing. Mm. And he's good at it. He's really damn, good at it. One of the damn best good. Ones. Damn good at it. Right. But the problem with him is that whenever celebrities start to get out of fashion, they enter the Philippine politics. And he is a politician. Because he's starting to go out of fashion. Right. He doesn't tag these big ticket fights anymore right. like, like before he fought in Las Vegas against Floyd Mayor all these boxing heavyweights in matches in the United States he's past his prime he's past his prime yes but the problem is he has nowhere to retire all his businesses but, but the problem with athletes is that once they are past their prime they try to create businesses that are still connected with their sporting fame mm-hmm. like this clothing brand of pac-man pacquiao <laughs> shirts shoes ties sporting apparel okay but the problem is it's connected to your sporting career and your sporting career is over you will be forgotten exactly and a number of his businesses failed ah. because they are, they are all banking on his uh, sporting success sporting success so the only place he can go because he has the money is Philippine politics. And is he doing good? Well, I would say he has mass support mm-hmm. from the lower levels of society because he's a national icon. They can relate to him. He's a, it's a rags to riches story. Right. But his qualifications as a politician, of course, he's completely not qualified. Mm-hmm. Completely not qualified. But then he just wants a seat in Philippine politics, not to serve, but to maintain this lavish lifestyle that he has built on his sporting career. And to be relevant even after the sporting career. And even after the sporting career. So, while he has the hopes and dreams, he is a national icon of the Philippines, uh, what I dislike from him is that entering politics, his entering politics is completely unjustified, and he just wants to save his ass. Mm. And once he is in politics, he simply acts as a placeholder for the administration. And he is for the ruling party at the moment. Yeah, whoever's the ruling party. He, okay. Whoever's the ruling party, he's just, he just acts as a placeholder. Like a Valentina Tereshikova figure. Yes. It's like a symbolic, it's famous just, person. Yes, just a like... symbolic party. And whatever the ruling... And uh, he just... He's just there for the vote. To give a vote in favor of the ruling party. Nothing else. He does not... Does nothing of political significance. What about the president? I forgot his name. Could you remind me? Rodrigo Duterte. Rodrigo Duterte. That guy. 
Deep breath. That guy. Here we go. Well, I would like to call him Purdy. Why? P-R-D-D. President Rodrigo Roa Duterte. Oh, okay. P-R-D-D. So, call him Purdy. Purdy. <laughs> Purdy. So, Purdy. <laughs> a political nobody from southern Philippines, Davao. That's actually a good thing. He's not one of the elites. That's, oh, that's no. That's what you think. That's not the thing? That's not what you think. He comes from... He may not be from the mainstream old Manila elite in northern mm-hmm. Luzon. He comes from the elite down south. Okay. Down south. He comes from a political family there. Okay. And, of course, uh, as, with all things, as with all things outside Manila, Dav- uh, Davao is uh, pretty much, uh, the southern Philippines is pretty much underrepresented in politics. It's, all, it all, it's always about Imperial Manila. Right. Imperial Manila. So he was billed as a newcomer in Philippine politics. He was not associated with these uh, old elites who promised democratic reform after the Marcos administration fell, but they failed to follow through with their promise 30 years later. It's like preaching that you do good, be good, but you're not good yourself. Exactly. They were preaching human rights, democratic reform, but they failed to deliver. Um, Philippines still a poor country. Right. So here we are, Rodrigo Duterte, a new new guy in the scene, and he he began he begins his approach by being a populist. In contrast to the old politicians who are, are quite disconnected with the masses, oh. they don't speak the language of the masses. Right. They they can barely speak straight Filipino. They speak English in all their interviews. Uh, they uh, they're clearly rich people. While Rodrigo Duterte brands himself as a populist. I am one of you. I am with the common man. He became a in became president in 2016. Yes. During that populist wave across the world. Populist wave across the world. What yes. Although I know that his populist camp his presidential campaign was engineered by Cambridge Analytica. For real. Cambridge Analytica got a part in this too. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> well, they they sucked the data of uh, they sucked all the data the data of the Philippines from right. Facebook and from Facebook. identified the common themes in Filipino discourse and targeted the ads at them. Yeah, not really the ads, but the relevant themes oh. found in Philippine Facebook data. Right. Drugs and crime. And that's the thing. That's the most interesting thing about it. This guy actually told if you know people who use or sell drugs, kill, kill them. them. Like it's like encouraging vigilante violence. Yes. Did it actually... It happened. People were killing drug dealers on the street and yeah. they weren't being prosecuted. Yeah. retired, I, retired. These were retired police. So people were literally taking gestures on their hands yes. with the support of the government. Yes. How support. did that work out? Well, it was just a sick cover story. It didn't, do, it didn't accomplish anything significant. It was just a cover story to... Uh, be popular and enter into the popular consciousness. So to interrupt you, does Philippines have a drug problem like of the likes of Latin America or? Well, uh, let me. Or is it like normal as in any country? Or is there like significantly higher rates of drug use and well, sale? Uh, let me, I, I read you an article on this. Well, we're the largest user of crystal meth in Asia. Mm-hmm. But where our, does that come from? Is it made UN China? Oh, it's come from China. <laughs> okay, China. It's complicated relationship. South China is important. Well, well, I'll get to that. Uh-huh. Well, 
Philippines is the largest user of crystal meth in Southeast Asia, but our drug use is um, it's just on the world average. Right. Then how was he able to make that a populist? Because it was because it was the, from Cambridge Analytica. He 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 designed this presidential campaign on this on these themes, drugs and crime. Oh. These were the themes that were so repeated in social media right. that it created a sort of echo chamber that intensified public right. sentiment to support him. That's quite brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, and Facebook got questioned because of that. I mean, they knew they knew that uh, the data was leaked, oh, yeah. but they didn't tell to the authorities. Their defense was, we tried to contain it ourselves first. But the point is, you didn't tell it to the authorities. So his presidential campaign was engineered by Cambridge Analytica, the same uh, firm that engineered the Trump... Uh, of 2016. Trump campaign. So there you have it. You have a populist campaign. People got swept off their heads... And uh, he becomes president with dire consequences. But though, though, look, look at the clientele of Cambridge Analytica. Pick their clientele. Right-wing populist politicians. Rich people. And rich people. Rich people, yeah. With, with this political nobody from Davao City cannot afford those services. True. And what do you do? Somebody must have vouched for him. Who do you think that is? China. Really? China, through the Filipino-Chinese business community, financed his Cambridge Analytica campaign. And he's very pro-China after that? Yeah. And the relation between America has strained since he became president? Yeah. Yeah. uh, The Philippines' relation with America is completely... It is in a complete all-time low now. And, and did Trump play a part, or was it exclusively... Exclusively Philippines. I mean, when he won, when Duterte won the, in the elections, he said, I am divorcing the United States and embracing Russia and China. Okay. He said that. <laughs> you can't be any more fuck you than saying that to the United States. And he also said fuck you to President Obama. Like, fuck you, fuck yeah. you? Why? I don't know. He literally said fuck you to Obama. You just... Pro- just search on YouTube. Uh, uh, President Duterte says fuck you to Obama. I, I need to see that. <laughs> President Duterte says fuck you to the Pope. Says fuck you to EU. President DU. Yeah, yeah, I found him. President Duterte says fuck you to Obama. Yeah. Okay, where are you, Obama? See, first result. I am the president of a sovereign state. And we have long ceased to be a colony. Oh, really? <laughs> I do not have any master except the Filipino people. Nobody but nobody. The best part. You must be respectful. Do not just throw away questions and statements. Putang ina mumurain. That's a big swear word. Dude, I, I know enough Spanish to understand that. Calling the U.S. president a son of a whore for more than his close correspondent, Dean Bernardo. Told you. That guy. Dude, can I be honest? I kind of like him now. <laughs> Dude. That guy. So, in, uh, in policy circles, in our strategic studies community, we call him a Manchurian candidate, a proxy candidate for China. How did that happen? Well, his entire campaign was financed by China through money coursed through the Filipino-Chinese business community. I mean... Why were they able to do that in 2016 when that did not happen throughout the history? Back. Way back, 
simply put, they exploited uh, they exploited these uh, mixture of emerging technologies and deepening social and political divides in the Philippines. At this time, at this time, uh, how could I put it? Philippine policy is like whatever is loosed in America is loosed in the Philippines, and whatever is uh, something like that. Whatever is loose. I don't understand. Yeah, it's a biblical verse. It's a biblical verse. Like when Jesus said to Saint Peter, the founder of the Catholic Church, "Whatever you bind in earth shall be bound in heaven, uh-huh, okay. and whatever you loose in earth shall be loosed in heaven." Ah, okay. It's just like the same thing. Whatever is bound in America is bound in the Philippines, and whatever is loosed in America is loosed in the Philippines, <laughs> except marijuana. <laughs> so going back. He, uh, Uh, it was a mixture of emerging technologies, for example, Facebook, to influence public perceptions, mm-hmm. and also this rising tide of political inequality in the Philippines. Mm. The last of these people, uh, Aquino administration, the member of the old elite, to be honest, their rhetoric has grown stale. They were promising, they, they were harping liberal democracy, mm-hmm. human rights, but they didn't follow through with economic progress. Their right. narrative... That was built during the Edsa Revolution has got stale, right? And people were frustrated with this the rising levels of inequality, and they see the elites simply banking off the country's misery, right? And now you have Duterte, uh, who is a political nobody in China. This is our speculation in the strategic studies community found an opportunity in him. And enabled by the use of technology, particularly Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, they were able to address the themes that were running through Philippine society, namely poverty, uh, crime, drugs, and uh, and paid Cambridge Analytica to help engineer a campaign for this guy to enter into power. That's that's diabolically brilliant. Diab- brilliant to the nth level exactly and they say russia is interfering in american election when this is of a whole different well, level this the uh, philippines we'd like to say philippines is a test case for uh, the guinea pig for this oper- the guinea pig for these operations Cambridge like a type operation yes this influence influence and disinformation operations Dude. and also this was in 2016 yes And also, uh, when President Duterte said that uh, in his uh, first announcements, I am shutting up for two weeks. What did he mean by shutting that? up? I mean, he, no public appearances for uh, two weeks. Okay. No statements from me. Think about your crimes and repent. Okay. Something like that. But in that two weeks' time, uh, Cambridge Analytica or whatever PR P, PR companies do this PR companies were already engineering his troll armies in mm. two weeks time setting up the infrastructure for a, a massive disinformation campaign to hit government critics on social media and uh, uh, intimidate people not to speak up kind of like time. the beast thing by Saudi Arabia but only... yeah and, yes also and I'm not to, not to betray my old profession the military but forget it I'm not in the military There are units in the military that have been utilized as uh, troll farms, fake news factories for the Philippine government. Question: What makes people in the military qualified to be fake news farms? Fake, fake, uh, 
civil military operations. There's a special there's a specialization in the military called civil military operations. You practically manage the relationship of the military to the civilians. To civilians, in United States terms, in Western military thought, that means uh, winning civilian support for oper- winning civilian like support for the military. Domestic propaganda. Somehow, the, the, the propaganda section of the military. Right. Like for recruitment and yes, yes. stuff like that. Y- yes. Uh, the military has a propaganda division for right. that. And it's perfectly suited for this kind of job. It is. And also we have uh, call centers in the Philippines. Call centers. These people who are social media savvy, they can be harnessed to do propaganda work for the government. You pay people. Yes. To work for the government, to uh, spread misinformation. Yes, yes. And it, 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 you get how much? Maybe 60,000 rubles? That's more than they, they offered you to be yeah. a high-level defense analyst. Yes, that's why I said, I should be a troll. <laughs> oh, I can't believe that. I should be a troll now. The, it's like the highest level of defense diplomacy, mm-hmm. where you are actually making decisions that affect the defense of your country. Mm-hmm. It's paid less than being... A troll. A, a troll. <laughs> Oh God, that that's really dangerous press well, precedent for the future. Well, and it also keeps the call industry, uh, call center industry alive because, as I to- as I've told you, AI is taking over, oh, yeah. and these people, Philippine, the bulk of Philippine people aren't well educated. They can mm-hmm. only perform basic jobs and speak basic English. Right. They're unemployable. Exactly, and that's only going to increase in the future. So these this this troll business gives them jobs. They have families to feed. Wow, this is shocking. They have families to feed. So, and but I, but as for me, uh, I have a lot of nationalistic friends. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm probably the most cynical of all of them. Right. I'm the Emperor Palpatine in the midst of the <laughs> Jedi community. I'm the Anakin Skywalker, the hidden Darth Vader the inside Darth me. Vader. After this podcast, you're not hidden anymore. <laughs> yeah, they know it. Yeah, they they know, know it. I know. I I can talk. I I can talk on the level with them, but I am. I have, shall we say, fallen to the dark side. <laughs> I fall into the dark side, so well, to speak. I'm. I'm not. I'm not. I don't share their optimism anymore. Right. Anyway. Um. So, China got themselves a proxy president in the Philippines through this campaign. And whatever, uh, and uh, this president was, this president for the large part of his uh, tenure as president, he had rolled back the Philippines' defensive position in the Philippines, in the West Philippine Sea, in the West Philippine Sea or South China Sea. uh, He reduced the Navy to a beach patrol. (laughs) Really, there's an article about that same title. Okay. President Duterte reduced the navy to the beach patrol, uh-huh. and also encouraged, uh, and also encouraged massive Chinese investment in the Philippines, especially what we would, uh, what they call as pogos, Philippine offshore gaming operations, pogos. Gaming as in casinos, ah, casinos, okay. because casinos in China are yeah, illegal. Only in Macau. Yeah, only in Macau, yeah. illegal. So they move. Uh, so you bring a lot of Chinese people to gamble. In yes, Philippines. in the Philippines, do prostitution, do drugs, do mm-hmm. all their. It's like it's like spring break for Chinese people. They make Philippines. Yes, even in France. I mean, I I have a French classmate, and she told me, these Chinese are bringing casinos and prostitutes to France. To in Paris. Yes. Wow. It's, and, well, all of this, 
the third uh, well it's like it's like this new meme this bargaining meme you become president you get tons of development aid and investment i get the south china sea ah that's the perfect deal for the chinese well but then he's meeting resistance from the old elite who are connected to the united states that i think that would be the perfect that power struggle with the united states and china would be the perfect way to describe the current situation of the, the philippines. philippines and that would be the perfect way to end this podcast we because we're almost at three hours uh-huh you wouldn't believe it we're almost at three hours and if it's three hours then i have to split it into two mm-hmm. so i think now would be a good place to conclude and bro this has been the most how do you say it, intense geopolitical <laughs> podcast i did and that basically speaks to how well versed you are in your particular field and i really enjoyed it oh thank you you're welcome and do you want to add anything to the audience about the philippines wow what do i want to add to the audience <laughs> so uh-huh good things in the philippines come in small packages Uh, as for me, uh, this podcast has showed how much of a pessimist I am, how much of a <laughs> cynic I am. But as with all, as with Latin American countries, I like to compare the Philippines with Latin American countries. The good things in the Philippines happen in small packages. It's the people that it's the people that you should uh, look into, not the not the not the politics, not the culture, but people to people relations, right. small stuff, personal relations, like with family and friends. Because I think that's where the good things are. I believe so too. So, well, Gabriel, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for spending the time with Thanks. me. Thanks. And I learned a lot in this, especially about the South China Sea thing, your colonial history, mm-hmm. a lot of parallels between India and the cultural genocide thing, mm-hmm. which I can completely resonate with. And I think that would be a good place to end this podcast. And with that, we bring episode on the Philippines to a close. See you next time.